Hey, before the show gets uh, going, I've got to talk to you about something. And that something is, turns out that October 2021 is a big deal in MRAP world. Because it was 20 years ago that MRAP started. Pretty amazing. 20 years ago, we published our first tape. Well, hello and welcome to EMRAP. And CD at the time. So the audio was about acute coronary syndromes, which was one of my passions at the time. And so the talk I gave then was terrible. But it was the beginning of MRAP. Myself, my name is Mel Herbert. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at the UCLA School of Medicine. And it was about 80 minutes because that's how much uh, time you had on one tape or one CD. That's all you got. And if you think I'm being humble by saying it was terrible, it's on the website. You can actually go back and listen to it. And it was terrible. This acute rupture of the plaque... Why it occurs, we don't know. Some people have suggested... 20 years ago, or actually more, I had this idea of doing topic-based audio updates. The way my friend and mentors Rick Bucatter and Jerry Hoffman had been doing with EMA, with literature updates. Beautiful day here in Los Angeles, and um, I don't think we have anything to say. Well, I wanted to say I was just up in Reading. Oh, please. I was in Reading, so Charlie Springfield... MRAP actually started before that with a thing called Nurse Practitioner Informer, the same idea that you should do... These audio updates topic-based, and I did that with my wife, who's an MP, and I was a professor of nursing at UCLA as well as medicine. And it was pretty cool, but after a year and a half, we stopped because, you know, my wife and I did all the content, and it turned out, you know, as a new young academic at UCLA, it was too much uh, to keep going. But I really wanted to do it for emergency medicine, so I went back and forth with Rick, and in the next uh, few months and few years, a lot of the content was actually UCLA faculty and local speakers, and I would sort of add commentary over the top and emphasis and it was a pretty humble beginning but it caught on pretty fast those first few words were pretty lean though but over time we we kept adding more conference audio we started to do deals with various conferences across the country and and then later we actually even got a website and we went from one cd or tape to two cds and then three and then at some point we added written summaries and then we continued to grow and then about 10 years ago a couple of really big things happened. I asked my friend Wendy Rodeweiss how to make the audio as good as NPR. I loved NPR, just like ABC in Australia. I loved NPR. The audio quality was so good. The reporting was so crisp. And we have to cut out all this noise. And they brought in these soundscapes. I'm like, I want MRAP to be as good as that. Yeah, that's a great sound. And she was a film school grad and a movie maker and professor. And, and we started on that road together. And we've been going on that road ever since. Until today, we have a legion of dialogue editors. We have three full-time professional amazing sound designers. And a program, frankly, that is second to none in terms of audio production. And around that same time, over a decade ago, we met with Silver Orange, and they built our first state-of-the-art website. And way back then, it cost about $85,000, which I thought was all of the money in the world and it completely freaked me out. And now that's sort of like a, a joke because tech is so expensive, but so important. And so the program continued to expand with more commentators and more experts. And then we had sort of defined experts joining us every month. And then Stuart joined me in the host position. And so she says, this is another problem with the footwear, I assure you. And she ordered new inserts for my shoes. And lo and behold, over about a week. Uh, it took a while. I was unable to walk for about a week. I was finally back on my feet. So we've been away for a year and uh, we do a case and basically it's about Stuart's tender feet. Oh my God. What the hell? And then we continue to add more characters because it felt like this thing was too much. It's too big. 
and we needed to get it right and we had to get as many people involved as we possibly could. And then about five years ago, we got super busy and Emergency Medical Abstracts, that thing that Rick and Jerry started, well, we took that over. But I think the bottom line is intensity matters. So go out there and sweat. Intensity matters. <laughs> intensity matters. You were pretty intense when you said that. And we incorporated it into this MRAP thing, which had gone from MRAP to now a whole bunch of silos under that name. And we added things like LLSA and board review and right on prime. I'm Heidi James, and I'm joined by Vanessa Carty, our hot summer weather-loving doc who practices medicine in the sub-Arctic. Vanessa, how do you live with that contradiction? Well, it's pretty easy. I wear lots and lots and lots of layers. But why are we talking about this? No, it is June. So, and then we added videos and then more videos and then HD videos and procedure videos. Tape so you don't get bit or cut during the reduction. And then we added a textbook, which was insane. You know, people have told us that we should do an MRAP sort of branded textbook for years, but it seemed like too much of a thing, too hard, too difficult and too expensive. But then, you know, with Amal and Stuart, we really thought about a lot, talked about a lot and decided that we could do it. We should do it because we needed a textbook that was ours, that was updated constantly because this field changes constantly. And we decided it should just be part of the MRAP universe. And again, we were told, you're out of your mind. It's going to be really expensive. You should sell it separately. Be like, no, we want this as part of the MRAP universe because this could be the grand unifying thing which brings all of these different parts of MRAP together. And it was a tough thing to decide, but it was the right thing. And it's really starting to work. And from those first years where we had a few hundred subscribers, and if you're one of them, thank you to today where we have over 50,000 subscribers. And not just in the US like it was at the beginning, but now in over 150 countries. And we have faculty from all over the world. And we have additions that are in multiple languages. And from multiple regions, and it keeps expanding all the time. We started putting on live stream events about five years ago. We're doing MRAP Live. We're going to be talking about uh, syncope, we're going to be doing journal club, we've got uh, special guests coming who aren't here yet. We're going to have to turn off my computer audio over there because that's a bit of a cluster. And that accumulated in the COVID live shows, which, you know, for some of those early ones had over 20,000 simultaneous viewers. You know, this situation is changing very rapidly. Knowledge is changing very rapidly. Even and then they would go on and get hundreds of thousands of views. And the Corpendium chapter that we wrote at the same time has now been accessed over a half a million times by over 100,000 people. We sort of moved from this idea from the beginning, which was this is just going to be a little audio review program every month where we just cover a topic or two, to the idea that we could serve the entire emergency medicine community from their undergraduate years all the way through retirement, from the bedside to boards to ongoing licensing. And we could do this with audio. We could do this with video. We could do this with conferences, both virtual and in person, and with a textbook. And we used to run for a while there an in-person conference, and it was big, and it was fun. But about five or six years ago, we stopped. But we're going to do it again. We need to get back into the physical world, and next year we start the MRAP1 conference. It'll be our place to get together with you and have beers and hang out, just like we used to. And it's going to be fun, and we're going to experiment with it next year, and then it's going to get bigger and bigger over time. And then at some point, too, during the life of MRAP, we realized, you know, we really wanted to give back to the global part of emergency medicine, that emergency medicine really deserves to be in every country of the world. And although we've been doing that since the beginning, 
we really thought it's time to get aggressive and really solidify those efforts. So we started a non-profit a number of years ago, MRAP Go, with a specific task to accelerate emergency medicine education across the globe. And we got a core group of faculty to do that. And now that faculty has expanded. And now we have faculty all over the planet. And I can tell you, there's not a person at MRAP or Silver Orange or our related companies that doesn't feel this real sense that the work that they do is exceptionally meaningful because it's allowing you to do your work. Your work, which is exceptionally meaningful, but also exceptionally difficult. The list of faculty and staff and influences on MRAP is just, it's too much to name. And I don't want to just list off a whole bunch of names. They know who they are. And I thank them all. And I thank you. But the very specific way that I thank you is by guaranteeing you that we are going to make MRAP better and better every day, every month, every year. That we're going to continue to invest in the leaders of emergency medicine and find the new leaders and develop them and reinvest in the technology so that you can be proud that your education program in emergency medicine is better than any other clinical specialty. That you have the state of the art. That's what we can give back to you because you're there 24 seven, 365. You're open for business. We do what we do because, yeah, because what you do matters. And on behalf of everybody at MRAP, we are just so excited to do it. And I can tell you, we feel like we're a 20 year overnight success who's just getting going. The next few years in particular, you're gonna see an explosion of technology and of content and of new ways of teaching that we could not be more excited about. So thanks for listening. Thanks for being part of this story. There's a lot more to this story. And we'll talk to you soon. Herbert out. It only would be three patients to have a different outcome to change the study from a positive to a negative trial. We just love to use our regimens. I think it just makes us feel better, frankly. It is a brutal, often unsuccessful technique where you jam an endotracheal tube into the nose of an awake patient. There was nothing abnormal about his exam apart from this look of somewhat lights on, but nobody home. What might even be worse is doing too much for a patient. But everything we normally use is on the naughty list, essentially. October? Welcome to the October edition of EM Wrap. It is October, which means pumpkin carving, trick or treat, leaves starting to change, costumes, all of the fun stuff of the fall. And of course, I am here with my wonderful co-host, Jan Schoenberger, and it is great to be back doing this with you once again. It's great to be back, Swami. I'm excited too. You mentioned all the Halloween-y things and fall things, and of course that means at the end of the month we get to have candy. So if you were reaching into a Halloween bag of candy, Swami, what are you looking for? Ooh, uh, you know, so I like chocolate and I like crunchy. I love a good Kit Kat bar. I think Kit Kat would be my go-to over and over again. Like if I was stranded on a desert island with one candy, yeah. it would be Kit Kat. Yeah. For me, I'm more like the gummy candies. So it's for me, it'd be like a Swedish fish or Sour Patch Kids. Those are, I'm fans, big fan. Yeah, and I, I know we talked about this before, but I actually feel like if I put you and my wife together for candy needs, yes. it would cover everything because uh, when she sees the gummy stuff, she like turns up her nose. She hates uh. it. It's got to be chocolate, chocolate or nothing. And so I feel like we could take the candy bag and yes. I could just send half of it to you right? and we'll keep the other half and it'll be perfect. I'll take it. <laughs> the case. All right. Well, Jen, you have a great little case for us to go through. So why don't we uh, start with that? 
Yeah, let's do it. So, you know, on MRAP, when we do these cases, we frequently talk about really sick people. You know, last month we did heat stroke. We've done major trauma, ruptured ectopic pregnancy. But this month, it's a little more run of the mill. We're talking about a case in fast track, which is kind of the smooth jazz of emergency medicine. It's nobody's favorite. It's not too exciting. It's kind of boring sometimes. But, you know, we got to talk about it. I think fast track is is interesting because it's fast paced, obviously. You're moving quickly through, but your job as a fast track doc is to pick up that needle in the haystack, right? The 40 patients you see that day, one or two of them are trying to die and you have to figure out which two. That's exactly right. So today I have for you a 54-year-old male and he's presenting with a chief complaint of worsening nasal pain. You like that chief complaint? What do you think about that chief complaint? It's better than dizzy. Anything's better <laughs> than dizzy. Okay. I, nasal pain, I feel like it's limited. There's not that many things it can be, so I kind of feel good about this. All right, so here's a little more background. So this is a poorly controlled, insulin-dependent, diabetic male. He was actually in your ED five days ago with the same chief complaint. And at that time, he was diagnosed with nasal cellulitis, and he was discharged on some Bactrim, trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole. And he's now returning, and he's stating it's not any better. So on your exam, just briefly, you look at him, you see this red, angry, left side of his nose. And so, Swami, just to review a little nasal anatomy, if you were describing the parts of the nose, do you remember what that outside skin fold of the nose is called? Yeah, absolutely. It's called the outside skin fold of the nose. That's, that's the technical term that I learned in anatomy. No, of course I don't remember. That. You think about the things that you spend time on in anatomy class. The nose is not one of them. It's kind of like, there's the nose. Now move on to something else. So I, I, I have no idea about any of this anatomy, except that you told me we were going to do this. <laughs> so I got a picture <laughs> off of Google and I looked at it. And the funny thing, Jan, is like, there's a lot of variation of what people call these different parts of the nose. Even in, in like medical textbooks, it seems to be that there's a little bit of variation. But you know, that, that, that rounded part, the nostril skin yeah. is the nasal ala. Yeah. And so that's, that's like the whole thing. But then even that is split up into different pieces. The bridge of the nose has its own name where the nose meets the forehead has its own name. And, and I honestly think when, when I first looked at the pictures, the images on Google search, I was like, somebody is punking me because these are not even real words that they're coming up with. They're great Scrabble words, though. I mean, I want to oh, tell you that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because nobody thinks they're real words. Everyone's going to challenge you and lose. Yes. So just so everyone knows, there's, you know, there's a lot of nasal anatomy out there. So let's talk about it, you know, more accurately. So I'm talking about the ala of the nose. So let me get a little more specific. He has a sub-centimeter area of mild fluctuance and induration over his left nasal ala with pustular discharge from a very pinpoint opening. His septum, you look inside, septum's intact, no evidence of septal hematoma, nothing bad going on on the inside. So, Swami, what do you want to do with this patient? Well, first of all, that description would make an ENT proud. If you called and talked to your ENT and you gave them that description, they'd be like, wow, this person knows what they are talking about. Not the usual consult that they get. I, I don't even bother. I just take a picture and I send it to them like, this is what <laughs> I'm looking at because yeah. it's just so much easier. And I think, you know, one of the things that we think about in that area is, you know, that, that triangle of danger that, you know, stuff in that area can then seed and go to the brain. And I know that that's one of the things that we think about. But, you know, ostensibly, this person's coming in through fast track and, and he's stable. He doesn't have neurologic symptoms. But I, I would at least be slightly concerned about that. Otherwise, this sounds like a fairly run-of-the-mill abscess that just needs to be opened. 
Absolutely. So I agree. You know, he's bouncing back. He's been on antibiotics. He's been compliant. He doesn't look sick. His vitals are normal. Neuro exam, including a good cranial nerve exam, all normal. So you're thinking you need to open something. So you're going to drain this abscess on the ala or the soft side of the nose, and which is, a, I mean, a super painful area. So let me ask you, what kind of local anesthesia are you going to use here? Are you just going to go for procedural sedation? Are you going to just infiltrate the crap out of it? What are you going to do? The run-of-the-mill approach is to infiltrate the area with anesthetic. We all know that doesn't work, though, right? We, we even tell the patient, I'm going to do this, but listen, it's not going to work. It's not going to feel better until I put a knife in it and I drain some pus. That's when it's going to start feeling better. It just doesn't work very well. And I have kind of moved over to doing a little bit more procedural sedation on some of these abscesses because they can be very uncomfortable. Not necessarily what you're talking about, but like the patients who have the gluteal abscess, I'm more willing to do procedural sedation on those patients. And we also have nitrous, which actually I have an upcoming segment with one of our pain management specialists about nitrous. Amateurs don't use nitrous oxide. Which makes things a little bit easier. But this patient can't get nitrous, Jan, because their abscess is on the face where I would apply the nitrous mask. So, I, you know, nitrous is my easy go-to because you don't need the full procedural sedation monitoring. So I, I guess I guess I probably would have done local infiltration, although there's probably a nerve block that would cover this too. Yeah, absolutely. So. This patient's very anxious, and sometimes your choice of local anesthesia or versus procedural sedation, as you mentioned, you know, can depend on the patient, what they're presenting with, what their anxiety level is. This is a patient who's like, I really, I don't want you to touch this, but you know that you kind of need to. So I'm liking the idea of a nerve block, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about nerve blocks and what your choice might be for this type of a nose. Now, this can also apply, obviously, if you have a laceration in this type of area that you wanted to repair. So in terms of nerve blocks, can you give me an idea of what you, if you're going to go that route, what nerve block are you thinking about? I mean, you can look at the anatomy of the face, the, the, the local distribution of sensory innervation. Yep. And there's a number that we can use that maybe are underused. So like the infraorbital block, yep. that might be about where this lies. I, I would have to really look at exactly where this thing is and, and look at that little, that little face chart yep. of what covers where, but it sounds like an inferior orbital block would actually be really good here. Yeah, so I think that is a go-to. And for those of you who don't do inferior or infraorbital blocks, the infraorbital nerve is a branch off the maxillary nerve, the V2 branch of trigeminal, and it exits that infraorbital ridge through a notch. And it's located basically kind of in the middle of the cheek, middle of the maxillary area, sort of between the lower margin of the eyelid and the upper lip. And you can get to this nerve by going through the mouth, actually, where the upper lip meets the gum right above your second premolar on that side you want to anesthetize. So the landmark is kind of cool here. You have the patient look straight ahead. You draw an invisible line from their pupil down through that infraorbital margin down to that second premolar. And that kind of gives you the track that you're going for. And that will give you the lower eyelid, that cheek, the side of the nose, the upper lip on that side, and actually a bunch of upper teeth, ideally, ideally. Now all these you know facial nerve blocks can hit people a little bit differently in different ways, but I probably would start with that block in particular. Now to add to that block, let me suggest a couple other ones. The supratrochlear nerve is another one. It's a, another branch of the trigeminal nerve. It's off the ophthalmic branch of E1. It lies right next to the supraorbital nerve. And these nerves both exit in the supraorbital foramen right above the eye, that supraorbital ridge. There's a little notch, they come out. And the supratrochlear one is the more medial one. It's a little bit more medial. And if you take that one out, you get anesthesia to the medial forehead and the bridge of the nose. And then there's one more I want to mention, which is the external nasal nerve. And it lies right along the junction of that soft ala 
and the face and you go right into the part where the bony bridge of the nose meets the cartilage and you do a little local anesthesia there and it will get you also the side of the nose. So what do you think about this plan, Swami? What do you think about my, my nerve blocks? I think this is really interesting because this often happens where the lesion, the thing that, that is causing the pain kind of crosses over a couple of different blocks and you kind of have to mix and match until you get the right level of anesthesia for that patient. And sometimes you have to explain to the patient too, because, yep. you know, they're like, wait, you're injecting in my mouth for to my anesthetize nose? my nose. <laughs> yeah. and, and so you have to, kind of have to go through this and, and explain to them of like why this is going to work and why this is going to help. Usually people are pretty happy that you're not putting the needle right into the abscess. And so any any excuse to get away from that area, they feel pretty good about. So I like this combo. It's definitely not something that I would traditionally do, but I, I think you have to be flexible and know all of these different blocks, where they lie, re-examine the patient, see if you've reached that nice anesthesia place so you can actually do the procedure properly. Absolutely. So we actually used a combination of these blocks. Probably the go-to would be the infraorbital block. Then I'd probably secondly add the external nasal block and then the supertrochlear would be you know, in specific circumstances, but I just wanted to mention it. So we did the blocks. This abscess was very comfortably explored. We didn't distort any landmarks, went right through that pinpoint defect with some small forceps, got some purulent fluid out, irrigated the cavity. And in this case, we did put a little bit of packing in the cavity. That could be controversial. In this case, ENT was recommending it. So that was done. And because this patient's glucose was very high and it was clear that his diabetes was not controlled, he ended up actually getting admitted for some IV antibiotics, some clindamycin. And I think that's also a really reasonable approach because there's other things going on, right? Either the patient's diabetes wasn't well controlled, which predisposed them to this abscess and they need to come in to get that controlled, or the abscess is causing their diabetes to be a little bit out of control. And so either way, I think it's reasonable. And again, that triangle of danger where this abscess is sitting, why not be a little bit more careful, play it a little bit safe? I think that's a, a totally reasonable approach. And, you know, one of the things that you mentioned was not distorting the anatomy. That's another reason to be really good at these nerve blocks, not necessarily for abscess drainage, but for laceration repair, where injecting right into that laceration makes it harder to repair the lac itself. But if you do a nice little field block, it makes it really easy to repair that laceration. So really a number of reasons to be good at these simple blocks to help the patient to get your procedure done properly. Absolutely. I love them. I think they're great. We just don't do them that often. But remember, these little local regional nerve blocks, they don't require precision. You just need to kind of deposit some of the local anesthetic generally in the area, massage it around, give it a little time, and magic happens. And the more of these you do, the better at them you get, and the more it becomes routine. And think about how much time you save not doing a procedural sedation on a patient like this and instead doing a field block like this or a nerve block like this to make it so much easier to do your procedure. I love this. And again, not the critical care, not the resuscitation, but a patient that is very happy with the care that they receive. Absolutely. This is what we come across every day. All right, Jan, before we get into all of the stuff we have for this month, one of the things that we have to mention is that MRAP is coming back with a conference, MRAP 1, which is happening April 19th to the 21st, 2022 in Los Angeles. And this is a fantastic opportunity for us to meet all of you guys, for you guys to meet us, for us to hang out, for us to have a live conference. And the registration should be up by now on the website. So you can go over to the MRAP website, go to MRAP1, register. We cannot wait to see you. And Jan, I know, I know you are super excited for a live conference. I am. I think it's a great opportunity to see one another again. We haven't had an MRAP family conference in a while. So I think the whole MRAP family is pretty excited. And I'm 
really looking forward to it. And here it is, home in LA, so easy for me to get to. <laughs> but for all of you, you know, LA is a great place to visit. And if you haven't been here before, please come and see us. We'd love to show you around our town. And we promise that it will not be your usual conference. You know, Mel you know. is not going to give you hour-long lectures. This is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a little special. And it's really going to be incredible. And I can't wait to get back together and do this. Yeah, you could even get hit in the face with a t-shirt getting shot out of a gun. You know, those kind of crazy <laughs> things happen. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Jan, let's talk about the program that we have. What did you like this month? So this month, my highlights, I really like the piece that you did with Scott Weingart on ketamine and intubation. It's something that we are really frequently doing, and I liked the in-depth discussion about it. I had an airway piece that I really liked, too. Ruben Strayer submitted a piece about hyperangulated and standard geometry video laryngoscopy, something that has been really confused over the last 20 years, and he very simply lays out what these mean. And I also like the piece that I got to do with Salim Razai talking about lytics and stroke, more about lytics and stroke. I know it's one of these topics we just cannot let go of, but this is a nice little piece diving into that topic. And with that, Jan, we are ready to launch into the month. I can't wait to see you on the other side of the mailbag. Yeah, let's do it. Let's go. Yeah. Rural Medicine Talks. Greetings all. Welcome to Rural Medicine. And I am once again joined by Julie Veith. Julie, why don't you remind us who you are and where you're from? Hi, Vanessa. Thanks so much for having me back. So I am coming to you from rural upstate New York, Canton Potsdam Hospital. We're about two and a half hours by ground from a tertiary care center. And uh, we have some basic services. But other than that, we transfer a lot of our tertiary care patients. Sounds like a perfect rural medicine case. So let's hear what you've got. So this was a day I was actually coming in for a night shift. And at 7 p.m. I, I came in and I was getting sign out on a three-month-old male. My sign out physician told me that the baby had been sent in because mom presented to the PCP with this episode that she was describing that happened earlier in the day. When her son had been crying, she noticed a soiled diaper. She was cleaning him up. And as she was doing that, he had about a three-second period of apnea with very brief episode followed by this of cyanosis. But it all spontaneously resolved. There was no loss of tone. There was no erythema. There was no fever noted. There were no convulsions noted. He seemed to be completely back to normal after that. But he had never done this before. And certainly she was concerned enough to call the pediatrician who said, well, come on in and let's take a look. The report in sign out was that, you know, he was a three-month-old male who was uh, cared for at home. He had siblings. Mom and dad were involved, and there had been this episode, and now what did we do? At this point, they had obtained a blood glucose that was normal, and there was this contemplation of, do we do this sepsis workup, or is this something else? And so I started by going to see the patient. And what did you see? What I saw was a very small for age little boy. He was only 3.8 kilos, and of note, his birth weight had been 1.9 kilos, so he had gained some weight. He was awake. His eyes were open, but he was really minimally interactive. He was moving all of his extremities. There was no crying, no abnormal movements. He seemed to have normal tone. I picked him up. We did a head to toe. Nothing was really out of the ordinary apart from this minimal interaction with human beings around him. I didn't find any bruising. His scalp looked normal. There were no signs of trauma. So I imagine while you're examining this little boy, um, that maybe you're chatting with mom, finding out a little bit more about his birth history and his life up so far up to three months? Yeah, definitely. And so mom was present 
and her son had been born full term, spontaneous vaginal delivery, but the in utero state had been complicated by her use of prescribed buprenorphine. And he was ended up being admitted for nine days with neonatal abstinence syndrome. He was small for gestational age, and he also had two days of hypoglycemia while he was admitted in the hospital post-birth. Unfortunately, he'd also had some in utero exposure to amphetamines, nicotine, and mom had had no prenatal care and reported that she only found out she was pregnant one week before his birth. After that, he'd actually been lost to follow-up after his first neonatal office visit, so we really had nothing else to go on. So what was the next thing that you did? Well, certainly then the differential pops into your mind. And I have to say, if I had not had children of my own, I might have thought that this child was acting normally. He was small, but, you know, he had tone. There was nothing abnormal about his exam, apart from this look of somewhat lights on, but nobody home. There was no outward seizure activity, and that blood glucose had been normal, which was certainly one of the first things on the differential. The other things I started thinking of, though, of course, were, was there trauma? Had he gotten into something by accident? Could there be infection? And... He was unvaccinated. He had missed his first vaccine appointments. So while he was three months, he was still definitely at risk for sepsis. So what did you do next? I said, we've got to do some orders. And actually, the first physician had put some orders in already. And so these were cooking a CBC, blood cultures, chemistry, a urine analysis with a urine culture, and then the good old procalcitonin, which, of course, we could spend a lot of time talking about. Oh, please, let's not. (laughs) Did you test anything else? Did you do a urine drug screen? I added on a urine drug screen only because of mom's history and wanting to really cast a wider net. Well, then the question is, do you LP this child? So my plan was to use the labs as a sort of an initial guide into what we were going to do. By this point, the child had been in the ED for a couple of hours and still had not spiked a fever. And I put out a call to our pediatrician. So it sounds like the baby is getting the run of tests that we would expect. How did the baby react during these interventions? Because these can usually cause a fair bit of distress for a wee one. Yeah. And so this is where it was sort of the perfect storm because it was shift change, both for myself and for the nurses. I had not been there for the initial phlebotomy stick for those blood samples. And it turned out that when I asked later, the baby hadn't really cried appropriately when they were getting stuck by a needle to obtain some blood sampling, as you would normally expect from a three-month-old. Yep. That definitely sounds concerning. What about when they uh, did the urine? Well, this was again happened around the time of shift change. And I noticed that the urine hadn't been done. And so I asked the nurse, you know, has this been done yet? He said, no, the baby had a wet diaper initially. So we were just waiting until the baby was hydrated. And then I just thought, well, wait, this baby hasn't cried for any food. Mom hasn't offered any formula. What's going on here? And the baby really was not showing any hunger cues. And so we obtained then a catheterized urine sample and there was no crying. And this is actually what tipped me into admitting this child and thinking something is very wrong with this child. Every baby I've ever catheterized or participated in a urine catheterization in has always cried. Okay, so you called the pediatrician, I'm guessing, and what did they say? She asked if I could do the LP, and again, really no crying. Now, sometimes, you know, babies are actually really great when they get their LP, But still, this was just a little bit too much of too cooperative, not acting appropriately. Then the next question really was, do we head CT this child now? Do we wait later? 
Do we look at the LP results? And this was a conversation that the pediatrician and I had and ultimately decided that there was really no evidence of trauma. We were going to see what the LP results showed. And so we deferred the head CT for a little while longer. Luckily, the head CT ended up being normal. There was no evidence of any trauma. There were no fractures. There was no bleeding. And how did you feel signing over this case? I was really glad that we had all put our heads together and suddenly realized that all of these small pieces of the baby not acting right was going to lead us down the pathway of admission. The LP ended up coming back completely clear, and the cultures were ended up being completely negative. We are lucky enough to have the PCR available to us, and that was all done for all of the bacterial and viral pathogens, and again, all negative. So the baby was upstairs, admitted overnight. Mom had to go home because she had another toddler and an older child to care for. The night went on. I didn't hear anything untoward for this child. And at the end of my shift in the morning, I decided to go upstairs and follow up and see how he was doing. I had noticed while he was in the emergency department, he was really awake. Too awake. He had not slept in probably eight hours. I followed up with the nurses upstairs and they said, really, he'd been awake almost all night. He had started feeding a little bit, taking formula from a bottle with a good suck. And finally, just before 7 a.m., he had drifted off to sleep. But they also noticed this, you know, appearance of that lights on but nobody home appearance. Still no seizures, still no fever. I got a chance then to catch up with the pediatrician that morning. And she had combed through all of the primary care records and came across a note from a little while ago and it was a nurse's note entered into the EMR. And this is where it becomes so difficult because A, we have multiple EMRs, both for our hospital setting, our ED setting, and our primary care setting. And also there's just sometimes so much information that you have to comb through it all. And so the nurse's note had actually indicated that CPS or Child Protective Services had called the pediatrician's office a little earlier that month and said that we noticed some twitching in the baby. And someone called us and said they had reason to believe that mom might be giving the baby buprenorphine. But unfortunately, that note was never acted on. And so the pediatrician said, wait, we can do a test for this. The pediatrician added on a urine drug screen for buprenorphine. That screen was positive. And at that moment, we just felt our hearts sink, but we also knew that we'd probably found the reason of why this child was not acting appropriately. Oh, the poor wee thing. So how did the baby do? Well, luckily, he did really, really well. He stayed in the hospital for five days, just making sure that he didn't go through withdrawal. He gained a whole pound while he was in over those five days. He was placed in protective care. Child Protective Services was involved. And unfortunately, the siblings were also removed from the home. And there was never any finding as to how the buprenorphine had gotten into his system. But we were definitely concerned that a three-month-old who's only taking formula was somehow getting buprenorphine. That's certainly a terrible story for this little boy and his siblings as well. But it's so great that you were able to have your spidey senses turned on and uh, sort of aware that there was just something not right, even though he wasn't fitting into all those sepsis criteria that you might have been looking for, to remember that there still could be something else going on. So what lessons did you learn from this case? Well, I learned that the tincture of time really can work in your favor. Now, obviously, there are things that we have to act on immediately all the time in the emergency department. But in this case, time actually helped. The other thing that helped is that I was really communicating a lot with the nurses to find out what was exactly going on with this child because I couldn't be in the room all the time. And it wasn't until we all put our heads together and realized, wait, that wasn't a normal interaction. That's not a normal cry or that's not any cry at all. And there's just not something right. And like you said, that spidey sense, 
Sometimes you can't put your finger on it, but you've really got to act on that spidey sense. Certainly when we usually admit patients, I would say 95% of the time, we know what's going on, we have a diagnosis, and very little times does that actually change. I didn't know what the diagnosis was going to be in this child in the end, and this was never even on my differential in terms of buprenorphine being the cause. Tox, sure. Buprenorphine wasn't there. And and so I think, again, really just digging deeper through those records, talking to your, your nurses, your pediatricians, your consultants, and acting on that spidey sense. Again, it wasn't a huge, wow, we just resuscitated a patient. But I think it was a pretty good save. I think that's definitely a good save. And I think one other thing that really hits me from this story is the value of a good chart review. Whether you have a paper chart or an electronic record, there is value of doing that scut work and going back and looking through all those notes because little gems can be hidden in there and they can give you the clue. Summary. Well, thank you so much for taking such good care of this baby. And of course, thank you for sharing the story. Thanks, Vanessa. Well, some excellent points were made there. If you've got a child that is not screaming in the emergency department, then there's probably something wrong with that child and you should do a further workup. Now, let's go to Corpendium and read a bit about buprenorphine. It's a partial opioid agonist, high receptor affinity. It has an onset of about 15 to 30 minutes with a peak effect of about one to four hours. Due to its low intrinsic receptor activity, there is a ceiling effect with respect to somnolence and respiratory depression. It has a dose-dependent duration of action due to its slow release from the mu receptor. And so this is a pretty safe drug, and so therefore it is being used in patients who have opioid issues. And I talked to Sean Norton, he said, look, it is actually minimally expressed in breast milk. So if this child was showing significant symptoms that are consistent with buprenorphine, which certainly it sounds like from this case, the lights were on but nobody's home, then it was probable that this was actually being given to this child. It wasn't sort of uh, licking the lollipop, well, three months old and, you know, three kilograms, they're not going to do that. And it wasn't being you know, expressed in the breast milk. So it is likely that somebody was actually giving that to this child, perhaps to chill them out. I don't know. That is supposition. There you go. And actually, we're going to do more on this buprenorphine sort of toxicity in kids and in adults and et cetera, because you're going to see more and more and more of it out there. And so Sean Nort and Stuart Swadron will get on it. Thank you to Vanessa and Dr. Veith for this excellent rural medicine case. It's time again for Scott Weingott. Critical care. Mailbag. Scott, love having you back. This is going to be a really fun critical care mailbag. You ready? Yeah, I'm so ready, Swami. Let's do it. Do it! Yeah, and the reason I'm saying it's fun is because one of the things that we haven't talked that much about recently is airways, which is weird because I know how much you love talking about airway management, but we've had so many other things that we've gotten into. But this is one that you sent me and you said, we have to do this right away. Let's get into it. This is an article that was published from the National Emergency Airway Registry, the NEAR database. The study was in 2020 entitled Ketamine versus Atomidate and Peri-Intubation Hypotension. And the big result of this study was that peri-intubation hypotension occurred in about 18% of those who received ketamine and about 12% of those who got atomidate. Not exactly what we would have thought. They did some logistic regression. Still, ketamine came out on the short end. And many folks have looked at the bottom line of that study, just the conclusion from the abstract and said, Atomidate is clearly the way to go. But again, I know you have issues with this study. Oh my God. Well, there's two of them, actually. It's it's worse. They published in the same exact time, two near database trials, one on patients who had the potential for hypotension and the other one in patients who were septic. And both of them alluded to the same idea that ketamine was associated with more post-intubation hypotension than Atomidate. And when I saw these, I'm like, 
Oh my God, this is going to do a devastating disservice to the emergency medicine community because unless you understand evidence based medicine at a high level, higher than I even understand it, you know, Swami, you and Sal, you're the people I go to for EBM, but I had enough specific domain knowledge to know that this was giving the wrong conclusions. And the reason you need to understand, I guess we'll give them a little primer and you jump in, Swami, you're smarter than I am on this stuff, is the reason why we progress the way we do down the evidence progression is you start off with things that intimate, right? You get these two trials on ketamine hemodynamics and you say, whoo, that's, that's an interesting result. You know, we looked at this database and we got a result saying, huh, maybe ketamine's more unstable. And that's a hypothesis. And then it's supposed to progress to a higher level of study that eliminates many of the confounders, which is an RCT. And why? Why Why do you need to get a randomized controlled trial? Well, it's because there may be other reasons besides the actual effects of these two drugs that there may be a difference in the groups. Now, could you think of any, Swami? I mean, a lot of this is the indication for why one drug was picked over the other. And you can do a lot of statistical manipulation to try and balance the groups and all these other things. But, you know, we might reach for ketamine because I'm like, oh, this patient's super sick and hypotensive. So I'm going to go with the agent that I think is going to have less of a problem. But that patient is big sick, which means it doesn't matter what I give them. They could have a bad outcome. Absolutely. So confounding by indication is exactly the problem you see in these two papers. And you could actually uh, parse out that it's there. There's many of the centers, this is multi-sensors in the database, who never use ketamine. And then all of a sudden, once in a while, they choose ketamine as their induction agent. Well, you got to wonder why a center that is almost predominantly atomidate every so often is choosing ketamine. And the reason why more than likely is they only chose ketamine when the patient was super prone to dropping dead in the peri-intubation. Now, those patients are going to have more hypotension after intubation. And Scott, that also brings up the issue if you're not using the drug frequently, there are features of the drug that you're not as familiar with. I mean, I find ketamine to be a very easy drug to use, but that's because I use it all the time. If you use it very rarely, you might run into some issues that you're not expecting as well. So there's so many different issues with this kind of a registry. Absolutely right. Now, when you get trials like this, these should be published. These are important things. And even if you can't absolutely with, you know, looking at a retrospective study, figure out all of the confounding factors, you still need it out there because it is suggestive and it prompts the doing of an RCT. The problem I have with these two trials is the RCT had already been done. It had already been done. The RCT was already out there, and it was a good RCT. This was published in The Lancet. I mean, you don't see many airway articles being published in The Lancet. And it was Jabre et al. It was called Ketosed. And it wasn't meant specifically to look at this issue because they, in their minds, had already closed the door on this issue. But it was atomidate versus ketamine to look at, does the atomidate adrenal suppression lead to problems? but they actually tracked post-intubation hypotension as well. And it was very clear. Ketamine was at least as good as atomidate. And it was really a well-wrought trial that really proved this. Now, the doubters of this trial said, this is an ICU trial. It's different in the emergency medicine world. They hadn't delved in deep enough into the actual methods of this trial. And I don't blame them because there was definitely some language issues. And since they didn't really care about the intubation period itself. They really cared about the later on. They didn't talk about very much how the trial was done, but it was actually a pure 
ED intubation trial with the proviso that some of the intubations were actually done by emergency physicians in the pre-hospital environment right before they arrived in the ED. So this was the exact group we wanted to look at. ED and patients just before the ED intubations, was ketamine more hemodynamically unstable than etomidate? The answer is clearly no, which makes these retrospective database trials a real, it really makes me question why they were published, why they had the hypothesis and chose to actually work on these trials. Because when you have a randomized controlled trial that's well done, you no longer do the retrospective database trials because the results will simply send people astray. Especially when you look at this study on the face of it and you see, oh, it's a huge number of patients that were included. There's some really big names on this trial as well, or on this study that was published from the NEAR database. And so that can really mislead people, like you said, but it doesn't add much to the conversation when we already have that good RCT. Of course, we'll drop a link to the RCT. People can check that out. It shouldn't really change what we do. Let's get to what we actually should do. Regardless of what these near database studies have published, what should we actually do when we have that patient? And let me give you the situation. We've got a hypotensive patient, hits the door of my emergency department. Now I know that I'm gonna do resuscitation prior to intubation. I'm not just gonna rush to intubate the patient. So I do that. I get the perfusion up. I get the blood pressure up. I've added on pressors. I've given fluids if necessary. I'm trying to figure out what's going on, but I still think the patient needs to have an intubation done. I've got my pressure at about 110 over 60. It's a a nice little place to be. What are you reaching for for medications in a straight RSI? And let's just obviate the need to talk about the paralytic because that's a, a separate morass to get into. Let's just talk about your amnestic sedative agent. Okay. Well, I have to give you a background and then a disclaimer. I'll do the disclaimer first. What I'm going to tell you is the way I do things, but it's not fantastically evidence-based because we just haven't done the trial yet. So uh, listen to that, but understand this is my way. This is not the perfect evidence-based way. The problem you run into is you want to, for any sedative agent, to reduce the dose, and that's going to give you more hemodynamic stability. But at the same time, you don't want a patient who is paralyzed and aware. So you kind of are in this dangerous situation where the wants separate out to two different directions. And I'll give you the path by which you could get both things. Atomidate is a hemodynamically stable agent in terms of the drug effect itself, but it still is going to lead many patients to have post-intubation hypotension because you're switching them from negative to positive pressure ventilation. You're turning off their brain's fear of dying and therefore lowering your endogenous catechols. So I want to reduce the dose. That's what the National Airway Course recommends. But the problem with Atomidate is that I don't know if I reduce the dose too much if the patient's going to be aware. Now, ketamine also is associated, we know this, with post-intubation hypotension. But the difference is that ketamine in a markedly reduced dose range still oftentimes will get you a completely knocked out patient. Atomidate, we don't know that's the case. It seems from the literature that atomidate in reduced doses has a much higher likelihood of awareness. So what can you do with ketamine that you can't do with atomidate? Here's the magic. You could do a hemodynamic delayed sequence intubation. Now I'm going to walk you through this. I could give a very low dose of ketamine. Let's say I give 0.25 or 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, much less than the anesthesia induction dose of this agent. But I'm not pushing the paralytic right away. So I push it. And since ketamine works very quickly, I could wait and see is the patient dissociated? Because they're going to continue breathing with the ketamine. They won't do that with the atomidate. They'll continue breathing so I could check my work. I could actually look and say, huh, 
This patient's still responding when I shake them. Not enough. I could give another 0.25 aketamine, another 0.25 beyond that if I need to, and I keep going until I have a dissociated patient. At the same time, since I haven't pushed the paralytic yet, I have not switched them from negative to positive pressure ventilation. So they haven't taken the big hit yet. They've only had the effect of the induction agent, the ketamine. I could look up at the blood pressure and see, did their blood pressure get better or did they take a hit from you know, being induced? And I can resuscitate them before I paralyze them. So now I have a, a stop, a stop point of just the induction drug itself to one, make sure they actually are induced. Two, to make sure that they actually have a reasonable blood pressure that's going to take the paralytic hit from negative to positive pressure transition. And only when I make sure both of those things are happening, the patient is induced, they're dissociated, they're no longer responding when I shake them, and their blood pressure is okay, then I could push the paralytic agent. So hemodynamic DSI, I can't do this with the Atomidate. I have to guess that my reduced dose of the Atomidate is going to get the patient no awareness. I don't know. I have to push them both at the same time because the Atomidate is going to lead to apnea. So that is one of the primary reasons that I always choose ketamine in these patients. Regardless of what amnestic agent I'm giving, what sedative agent I'm giving, because I'm giving a paralytic, we're doing RSI, the patient is going to have some hemodynamic compromise. This is, we're taking away their catecholamines. Like you said, we're switching them to positive pressure. I think that's an important thing right off the bat for people to understand. Yes, these drugs may be hemodynamically stable, but not when we are giving a paralytic and taking away all of those endogenous catecholamines, all those other things. So that's really important. And then it's about modifying the dose. And what you're saying is, I can't really do that with Atomidate. Atomidate is an on-off drug. And you're right, you get apnea at the doses that we typically use for intubation. And so I can't titrate Atomidate in. Whereas with ketamine, I can. I can titrate until I have the effect, then push my paralytic, and then be ready to go. Absolutely. And now the, the, the key I always give when any form of delayed sequence intubation DSI is when you push the ketamine, you don't get to walk away. You don't get to do other stuff. You are ready in that one in a million circumstance where the patient becomes apneic from the ketamine to immediately progress to giving the paralytic and moving on. It's never happened to me, but it is possible. It is case reportable. I think there has only been a couple of cases reported in the literature, but you have everything ready to intubate that patient before you push the ketamine and then you don't leave the bedside. You stay there ready to go observing the patient continuously. It sounds like what you're telling us is that you're not using Atomidate under any circumstances for RSI. It's not a drug you're reaching for in patients who you're going to RSI. You're going with ketamine for everybody? No, well, it's the opposite direction I actually like Atomidate. I reach for it in patients who I'm doing a neurocritical intubation. You know, the patients who I just want a rock-solid, hemodynamically stable agent. I don't want something that'll send them down, like propofol. I don't know how far they're going to go down. I can't let them become hypotensive. I don't want anything that's going to spike their blood pressure and make their brain injury worse. So Atomidate is my ideal agent for neurocritical care. The only other time I reach for Atomidate is when I want to have my drugs prepared before the patient gets there because it's not a controlled substance. The nurses could get that from the Pixis, draw it up, have it ready. Can't do that with the ketamine because I need a patient medical record number. So under most circumstances where you have a patient with some spotty hemodynamics, ketamine is what you're going for. The Atomidate, though, you're going to be using in the isolated head injury patient the patient with the stroke, the patient with the bleed that you need to intubate and you don't want to really have any effect on the blood pressure, accommodates what you're reaching for there. And like you said, propofol is an agent that we typically see used in those circumstances, but you just don't know what the hemodynamic response is going to be and you could really bottom them out. So accommodates what you're going with there. Absolutely right. All right. Let me ask you one other question along these lines. 
you have this patient, and I said that we got them to a pressure of about 110 over 60, but I've heard some people talking about in those hypotensive patients when they're resuscitating, they need to get an RSI, that they push that MAP higher than the standard 60 to 65. Is that what you're doing too? Are you pushing the MAP higher knowing that you're going to have a little bit of a drop with your intubation? 100%. You know, if you have a, a septic patient, if the norepi is not in the room, it should be, regardless of their blood pressure, any septic patient you're intubating. And if they're already on it, I'll knock them up to a MAP of 80, 85, 90, knowing I'm going to get the hit. And if the patient is already hypotensive and maybe they're on high dose vasopressors, I'll actually give an empiric dose of push dose epinephrine to get their cardiac output up in anticipation. And if you have a trauma patient who you're transfusing, you know, maybe you're massively transfusing, don't get them to just that map of 65 or even permissive hypotension 50 for this kind of intubation. Send them up higher than you ordinarily would right before the intubation. And that means even if you have to give a push dose vasopressor like epinephrine, do it simply to keep them from bottoming out to the critical math threshold where they die in the peri-intubation period. Summary. All right, Scott, so there's a couple of big take-homes I think we need to understand. From an overall EBM perspective, we need to understand that registry data has a place, but not when you already have good RCT data telling you what to do about something. And that's exactly what we see with this ketamine versus automate issue. We already have a good RCT that's been done. We're not going to go back to a registry data set. And so what people should take home from this is that ketamine is probably the ideal agent to use in the patient who is hypotensive or hypoperfused, but we don't need to do it with full doses, knowing that whatever agent we give in a full dose, along with our paralytic, is going to drop their blood pressure. It's going to cause more hemodynamic compromise. We're going to resuscitate prior to getting to the point of intubation. And then we use ketamine to titrate to effect to make sure that the patient is amnestic of that intubation, of that paralysis, but we're not pushing their blood pressure any lower. We've got them in the perfect spot. And then I like the tip at the end of pushing that map a little bit higher when you've got that hypotensive patient and you're going to take that airway understanding that everything you do around that airway is going to have effects on that blood pressure. So push them a little higher, give yourself a little bit more room to make that intubation happen. Scott, thanks for going over this with us. I'm sure we're going to get some questions on it. We will get those back over to you as soon as they come in. Fantastic summary. And this was a pleasure, Swami. It's bad enough to be sued for not doing something for a patient and not saving their life. But maybe what might even be worse is doing too much for a patient, saving their life, and then being sued because the patient is DNR. Tired of going commando into lawsuits? Stop messing around. Well, it's time to put on some medical legal briefs with Mike Weinstein. Stick around. So to help go through this again is the second part in our discussion of all things DNR with Ferdinando Mararki. He is the medical director of UPMC Hammett in Erie, Pennsylvania. For those of you who may be thinking, this is part two? When was part one? Well, part one was actually an MRAP snack back in April 2021. In that snack, Dr. Mararki and Dr. Weinstock talk about all things advanced directives. Everything from terminology to proper paperwork to emergency physicians' knowledge and perceptions about advanced directives. So without further ado, it's back to you, Mike and Ferdinando. Ferdinando, welcome. Thank you, and thank you for having me back. Well, this case really scared me, and I will say, just as a little bit of background, don't scare too easily, but this is a case that was described in the New York Times, so this is all public information, of 
Elaine and Gerald Greenberg. They were dental students in 1976 and were married at that time. They lived together. They had a family. But in 2010, she noticed that her husband was developing some symptoms of dementia. She came up with an end-of-life plan for him. However, when the patient was transferred to the hospital with a diagnosis of sepsis and the patient had antibiotics started and the patient's life was saved, she sued the emergency physician for going against her advanced directive. So to sort this all out and just probably to help all the collective blood pressures that have gone up in these emergency clinicians around the world by 40 or 50 millimeters of mercury just on hearing that introduction. Ferdinando, help us unpack this. What actually happened here? And what do we need to know in our practices at the bedside of the emergency department to help this from happening to us and most importantly, to our patients? So it's a great question. And you know what happened? And there's only two people that really know what happened. The spouse who got offended enough to sue and the physician who treated and essentially got sued. But essentially what happens are these communication issues and breakdowns. We have to rely on tools. And unfortunately, the tools are paper-based tools. And we have to rely on these paper-based tools and hopefully get some input from a family member when we don't have the ability to talk to a patient anymore. And in this instance, you know, the treatment decision, you know, offended a spouse to the point that they sought out legal action and won to the degree of something called wrongful prolongation of life. And as you said, you know, you could do the right thing here and save a person's life, or at least in your mind, do the right thing here and save a person's life and end up getting sued and essentially being told that you did wrong for saving a person's life. So they go further in this article to talk about that a 2017 analysis looking at 800,000 Americans found that less than half of them had completed a advanced directive. Of course, most patients that are in nursing homes, in my own experience, have these advanced directives. So Fernando, I want to take this very much to a granular level of us at the bedside in the ED us watching that patient come through the double base squad doors, either having chest compressions or being close to death, because, you know, I get it if there's some question, we always err on the side of doing more. But if the patient has a DNR bracelet, if they have DNR paperwork, or in my practice, if there is a person who says they are the power of attorney and says they don't want to have anything done more than comfort measures, In those situations, it's easy for me to default to the comfort care, just keeping them comfortable and not doing those life-sustaining measures, even if it's something as easy as giving antibiotics. However, if there is some question, that's where I can see this sort of thing happening. Because, And the question that I want to ask you, Ferdinando, is when a patient who is comfort care is transferred to the ED, and I don't have that either power of attorney or the ability to ask the patient about what their wishes are, To me, in some ways, it almost seems that their code status has been changed because why would they have been transferred in the first place? That's a great point. That is a great point. So again, it comes down to understandings, right? As far as patients, the staff at the facility, the family member, and so on. And quite often, a high percentage of the times, those DNR orders and even post orders or existing out of hospital do not resuscitate orders or just hospital or nursing home acquired code statuses are wrong. And you said it yourself, someone took the initiative to send that person to an emergency room or call 911. So did that mean that they were changing their mind, which they have every right to do? 
or was there a miscommunication that that order was not a valid order? So then me and you get stuck with having to figure that out, right? And if you don't have someone there who could actually explain it to you and really justify your actions and so on, and you don't document your actions, then we run the risk now of being sued for wrongful prolongation of life. Because if that person's life is saved and that power of attorney or agent comes in and says we did wrong, we are now liable. I want to really get to some specific cases of this wrongful prolongation of life because it's not common. It's certainly not as common as missing meningitis in a 18-year-old or missing a MI in a 50-year-old, right? However, there are these cases, and this article goes on to further describe the case of, of Rodney Knopfel. In 2019, he was a citizen of Montana, and he was awarded $209,000 in medical costs and $200,000 for mental and physical pain and suffering to his estate, which was believed to be the first wrongful life case in Montana. There was the case of Jacqueline Alicia in Georgia, who won a $1 million settlement because she was placed on a ventilator, which disregarded the advanced directive instructions in her situation. And then there was a case of Beatrice Wiseman, 83 years old, hospitalized after a stroke in 2013. When her doctors found her turning blue, they resuscitated her, but they resuscitated her and she ended up living for seven more years with, unfortunately, a need for round-the-clock medical care. So you could imagine that a family who is providing this financial remuneration for round-the-clock care has an exorbitant amount of fees that will need to be paid so you could understand, for some people, the need for the suit. Now, of course, some of these, and one of the situations that I mentioned previously, they could have then withdrawn care. However, sometimes, based on whatever people's beliefs or values are, withdrawing care is a little bit different than not initiating that life-saving care. So there's a lot of very interesting subtleties that need to be unpacked with this. But what I want to do is come up with a list of some things that we can do when a patient comes into the ED to, most importantly, not resuscitate someone that either themselves or their family do not want to be resuscitated. And secondly, something that can be protective of us, obviously, for one of these lawsuits that might come back later saying, you did everything you could, <laughs> but that's not what we wanted. Most importantly, it comes down to checking and verifying the information, right? You know, if there's a DNR, if there's a pulse, if there's a video, you have to check and verify the information, okay? And check with the patient first. If the patient's able to speak to you, that's where it ends. Patients get every right. And then you have to document it. You have to document your actions and conversations to make sure because that medical record is going to be the only thing that protects us because everybody else has a different understanding of what occurred. But what you put down in that record is really what protects the physician and quite frankly, protects the patient as well because there are a number of agents out there, right? You know, a number of healthcare agents or power of attorneys out there that really aren't acting in the best interest of the patient. They're more acting in their own or their family's best interest. And we get stuck in that middle again, which is a really muddy and sick place to be for us. And in previous studies, in our triad six and seven studies, we published an ABCDE checklist. So, you know, A, you ask them what their intentions are as far as any living will, DNR order, pulse order, or video. B, being clear to actually understand what their intentions are. 
C, communicate clearly what we think the issue is for that particular patient. Do we think they are terminal or do we think they're critically ill? D is really designing the care plan for that particular patient, whether it's instituting life-saving care and setting up palliative care in hospice to come in later, or talking about de-escalating the care. And then E is really explaining the role of hospice and palliative care so that we can actually provide the support to those patients. And that would actually provide a framework for us all to document and document in our records very quickly as far as to protect the patient, protect ourselves, as well as the institutions we work for. So maybe this might be one approach. The patient gets there. If they're able to talk, we certainly ask them. And if we think that we're getting a reliable answer, then certainly we're going to do what they say. And just because you are DNR, comfort care, doesn't mean that you can't change your mind at some point. And I've had patients do that also. Secondly, if there is a family member with them, which these days is a little bit tough in the age of COVID because a lot of family members aren't coming into the ED. Third is looking for some sort of advanced directive. I found, I mean, maybe it's not 100%, but sort of close to that when the patient comes in with the nursing home papers and sometimes the paramedics will say, oh, they're out in the truck. Do you want me to get them? It's like, yeah, right? So, you know, getting that is usually on there. It's fairly easy to contact the ECF, at least it is for me because I asked the unit clerk to do that. And when they send a patient to the ED that is near death, typically they remember that patient and realize that hopefully they will get a call soon about that one. Another thing could be looking through the chart. And I only mentioned that one last because of the fact that in our EMR and other EMRs that I've worked in, to me, it feels notoriously difficult to find where that DNR order is. And of course, I'm getting that. It might be sometime in the past. Maybe it's changed. So always better to get it in real time if you're able to do that. But one point I really want to leave with the listener is that if there's ever a question, we always do everything, of course, pending that additional information about their code status. And so what you said is so important is document what we did and the reason we did it in that sort of real-time type scenario. The patient came in, I didn't have access to DNR orders, so I did everything. Or the patient came in and they had DNR bracelet on and they're getting chest compressions, (laughs) like happened to me one time, and I asked the paramedics to stop. And they said, well, we don't have signed paperwork. And I said, but for me, a DNR bracelet on the wrist is good enough and I'd like you to stop. And they were totally fine with that. They just didn't want to make the call themselves. So not having this due diligence as far as either speaking with the nursing home or trying to look back through the chart. And it's not even something we need to do. If it's the middle of a code, we can ask somebody else to do those things. For example, the unit clerk or the nurse or some other person, a resident or a student or whoever that we're working with, we might want to you know, confirm it by looking at that ourselves. But once they pull that up or they get that information, certainly, and you have know, confirmed the name, et cetera, that is something for me anyway, I would feel comfortable stopping resuscitation. I'm really interested because I know you've showed me some of this stuff, but this video DNR is really just like a game changer when it comes to patients really being able to accurately express their wishes in a recorded but real-time type format. So I totally agree with you as far as if you don't know, you treat, right? But I'm going to tell you, there are a lot of people who don't agree with us today. There are a lot of people in palliative medicine that don't agree with us today. They believe we need to have permission to resuscitate prior to resuscitating. And the problem, obviously, is a lot of times that permission is nowhere to be found, right? And, you know, I always advocate for treating 
and letting the dust settle afterwards because you could always pull a tube, but you can't really bring somebody back from the dead. But now you have judges and Supreme Court judges essentially saying that, you know what, that approach is wrong now and you're, you're inducing harm. So my fear is that these cases and these cases are increasing and they are propagating more and you don't hear about many of them because they settle out of court. But my fear is that these types of cases are going to cause emergency physicians to basically look at the form and say, nope, I'm not going to touch that patient I'm not because if I do, I'm going to get sued for saving her life. You know, the other approaches that you described, yeah, they're, they're the same ones I'm going to use. Well, I'm going to talk to the person, patient first if I can. I'm going to try and call that skilled nursing facility. I'm going to try and call that patient's agent and try and get information wherever I can. And I'm going to try and document it as best I can as far as my treatment approach. Because again, that's the only thing that's going to protect the patient. And it's the only thing that's going to protect yourself and the institution you're working for. So Fernando, to me, that is a real take-home point of this segment is in the same way that we look back at an old record or we would try to get a history from the patient. I mean, you could say it in this way with us being so busy, you know, the time that you are saving because the patient is unresponsive and you're not getting a history from the patient, use that time to try to really figure out what their DNR status is. And again, there are other people that can help us with that by going through the record and trying to find that. And of course, we'd like to confirm it as the correct patient, et cetera. So that really, to me, is one of the main take-home points here is to take the time to do that. And maybe it does involve calling the family member who is the power of attorney. Maybe it does involve calling the ECF if they didn't send that paperwork. Summary. Thank you so much for spending the time these last couple episodes talking about these end-of-life orders. Many things that I take away from these two segments that we have done is, first of all, there's a pretty poor understanding, not only with paramedics and nurses, but also with emergency medicine clinicians about what end-of-life actually means. Second thing is, until we actually ask the patient about it or find out about it, like we talked about these wrongful life type of suits, we're not going to know how far we need to go. So certainly taking the time to try to get as much information as we can about it. And then finally, when we are making that decision, and I know we haven't talked a lot about this, but, but what I'll do when I talk to a family member is I don't ask them, you know, what do you want the code status to be on your loved one? I would ask, what would their wishes be if they were able to tell us? And really absolves the family member from thinking that they're actually, you know, like allowing the patient to die, that type of thing. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise on this. Congratulations on all these studies, and we'll look forward to talking to you next time. Thank you very much, and thank you again for having me. The past 10 years has seen an explosion of airway technology that has brought many new very powerful options, but has also brought much confusion. Let's try to sort it out. He's got concerns with debating VL to DL, as if the use of VL is not the real deal. First you train on SGVL so you get a feel. Here is his appeal on Ruben Strayer Reels. In the earliest days of emergency medicine, Emergency docs did not have access to paralytics or the powerful induction agents we love so much. So the only option was blind nasotracheal intubation, which is a procedure many of you have never heard of and just as well. It is a brutal, often unsuccessful technique where you jam an endotracheal tube into the nose of an awake patient, hope it aims at the vocal cords, and then by listening to breath sounds through the tube, you try to time advancing the tube with the opening of the cords. All this done completely blind. 
a horrendous procedure. Gaining access to succinylcholine was one of our crucial milestones, allowing patients to be safely and humanely intubated using a traditional laryngoscope developed in its present form in 1943. If you were really fancy, you would avail yourself of different blades, like the Miller straight blade, which remains popular in pediatrics, or a McCoy blade. I'm delighted which has a hinged tip you control with a lever. Please don't say it's fascinating. But for decades, just about every emergency department intubation was done using a traditional laryngoscope. We didn't call it a traditional laryngoscope, of course, because it was the only laryngoscope. And most of the time, this went well. But often enough, not, because lots of patients have difficult airway anatomy. So a variety of alternatives were developed, including retrograde intubation, where you introduce a wire through the cricothyroid membrane and retrieve that wire through the mouth, then use it to guide the tube through the cords, which seems kind of insane, but it's very slick when done by someone who is experienced in the technique, which is just about no one anymore. The guy who hired me for my first attending job loved the trach light, which is a stylet that is illuminated with a bright light at the end of it that you insert blindly into the mouth and basically just horse around until the light appears very bright in the neck, which means you're in the trachea. I haven't seen one of these in some time, again, probably for the best. I was halfway through my residency in 2005 when the air track was introduced. Instead of trying to push the tongue out of the way, this rather genius device allows you to see around the curve of the tongue by looking in an eyepiece using a series of mirrors, which seem like magic. Meanwhile, upstairs, anesthesiologists used expensive, fragile fiber-optic bronchoscopes to manage their difficult airways with a topicalized awake technique, which is very safe because, as the name implies, the patient is completely awake, and intubation is facilitated by the assiduous, methodical application of local anesthetic, usually concentrated lidocaine, atomized, nebulized, dripped, swallowed, gargled, and often in combination with regional techniques so the patient can be entirely awake and feels nothing, so a very, very safe way to intubate a patient with a predicted or known difficult airway for an elective tummy tuck. But the problem with topicalized awake for emergency medicine is that it requires time, patient cooperation, a skill set that is often not well taught in EM residencies, and equipment like atomizers and concentrated lidocaine that isn't always available. Although the piece of equipment that has been hardest to make available downstairs, the flexible endoscope or bronchoscope, is becoming more available. The GlideScope was invented in 2001, but didn't become prevalent in American emergency departments for some years, and this device changed everything. But it also confused everything, because it simultaneously introduced two distinct technologies. The GlideScope introduced the world to video laryngoscopy, which is putting a camera on the end of a laryngoscope blade, which projects the image onto a screen, but at the same time introduced hyperangulated geometry which is a very steeply curved blade designed not to displace the tongue, but to creep around the tongue. And it took us decades to understand this. These two technologies are radically different in their importance. Video laryngoscopy is an indisputably transformative advance that has changed everything. But hyperangulated geometry is a comparatively marginal advance and is in fact a trade-off compared to the alternative, which is the standard geometry blade. But because these two technologies were introduced simultaneously in the same revolutionary device, it has caused a lot of confusion. Let's address that confusion starting with a couple of definitions. A couple of definitions. Direct laryngoscopy is using a laryngoscope to clear out a path in between your eye and your patient's glottis so that you can see the glottis directly with your own eyes. Video laryngoscopy is using a blade with a camera at the end of it to project an image of the glottis onto a video screen 
so you can see the glottis not with your eyes, but on the screen. Traditional laryngoscopy is what we were all doing before video using the 1943 laryngoscope. You often hear this referred to as direct laryngoscopy, but that's imprecise and confusing, because as I will emphasize, you can do direct laryngoscopy with a video device that has a standard geometry blade. A standard geometry blade, like a Macintosh or Miller, is designed to move the tongue out of the way, so you can perform direct laryngoscopy and see the glottis with your own eyes. In addition to performing DL with a standard geometry blade, you can also put a camera at the end of a standard geometry blade and project the glottis onto a video screen. Hyperangulated blades have a much sharper curve and are designed to get a camera at the end of the blade around the tongue to project the glottis onto a video screen. You cannot do direct with a hyperangulated blade because they don't move the tongue out of the way. They creep around the tongue. So with standard geometry video laryngoscopy, you can do direct or video. With hyperangulated video laryngoscopy, you can only do video. And of course, with traditional laryngoscopy, you can only do direct. To state this differently, if you're using a traditional 1943 laryngoscope, you're looking in the mouth. With a hyperangulated blade, you're looking at the screen. And with a standard geometry video blade, you can look in the mouth or at the screen. You often hear people use the term glidescope to refer to hyperangulated blades, and CMAC to refer to standard geometry video blades because they are the two most popular video systems. And in the early days, Glidescope used only hyperangulated blades and CMAC used only standard geometry blades. But that hasn't been true for many years. And both systems now allow the operator to use both types of blades. So avoid using the terms VL and DL when you're talking about an airway modality because those terms don't tell enough of the story. When you say VL, I don't know if you mean standard geometry video laryngoscopy, SGVL, or hyperangulated video laryngoscopy, HAVL. And these distinct modalities require very different techniques. If you say DL, are you talking about using a traditional 1943 laryngoscope, or are you talking about using a standard geometry video blade, but you're going to look in the mouth and not on the screen? There are important consequences to choosing one or the other, so be specific. And certainly don't use a brand name when what you mean is a blade type, because that's just incorrect. Some airway choices. Okay, with all that as background, we can talk about some airway choices. Ever since the advent of video laryngoscopy, there has been a raging VL versus DL debate that I think is finally going away because it only makes sense these days if you mean traditional laryngoscopy versus hyperangulated video laryngoscopy. To compare traditional and standard geometry video makes no sense because an SGVL blade can be used as a traditional blade or a video blade. SGVL obviously beats traditional because traditional direct laryngoscopy is contained within standard geometry video laryngoscopy. If you don't have standard geometry video available to you, if your video device only uses a hyperangulated blade, in that case, you have to choose between hyperangulated video and traditional laryngoscopy, and it's valuable to consider the merits and demerits of each. But this question is also becoming less relevant because more of us are using video systems that allow you to swap a standard geometry blade and a hyperangulated blade on the fly in the middle of an airway procedure. Most modern video systems do both HAVL and SGVL and can in fact quickly switch between them. So as these hot swappable devices are becoming standard issue in the emergency department, DL versus VL has become a silly debate. The debate in 2021 is which video blade to reach for first. And the corollary to this development is when you have access to standard geometry video blades, which hopefully most of you do, there is no reason to ever pick up a traditional laryngoscope. The only reason to stock them is in case your video system breaks. 
Not everyone is going to like this statement, but the impulse and desire to use a traditional laryngoscope in 2021 is just bravado. There is a pervasive sentiment that using video is cheating, that real emergency docs intubate with traditional laryngoscopes, but this is misguided and dangerous, and in a training environment is probably reckless, as it is very difficult to assist a learner who is using a traditional laryngoscope, because you have no idea what they're seeing. And half the time, the learner also has no idea what they're seeing. So now we can approach the trickier and more interesting question of standard geometry video versus hyperangulated video. And the first point to make is that if you are good at either technique, you are going to successfully intubate just about everyone. They are both fabulous techniques, but there are key differences. And the first is that it is significantly easier to achieve a good view of the cords with a hyperangulated blade. And that is a big deal, especially among infrequent intubators, because seeing the cords calms you down and you do a better job when you're calm. Furthermore, HAVL requires much less force than SGVL because you don't have to move the tongue out of the way. This is potentially important in a patient with a cervical spine injury, or for example, a tongue mass, which is at risk to bleed if disturbed. But that easily acquired fabulous view that you get with a hyperangulated blade comes at a price, and that price is tube delivery. It is considerably harder to get the tube through the cords with HAVL because your view from the camera on the other side of that curve points up, but the trachea points down. There are, of course, ways to overcome this, and those skills are crucial when doing HAVL, but they're poorly taught, and they're counterintuitive, and the goals of HAVL microskills are essentially opposite of your goals when using a standard blade. In SGVL, the goal is to get the best view you can, whereas in HAVL, the goal is actually to get a crappy view so that you don't have to struggle to deliver the tube. But again, this is counterintuitive. Your impulse is to get the best view you can. So SGVL and HAVL require importantly different skill sets. Standard geometry laryngoscopy is faster than hyperangulated laryngoscopy because it's a little slower to get the view, but a lot quicker to deliver the tube. You can use a bougie with a hyperangulated blade, but it's much more straightforward with a standard blade because the path of tube delivery is literally straightforward. And a bougie is a very powerful device that you want to use. For the same reason, it's easier to use suction with SGVL, and this can make a big difference in contaminated airways. You often hear that fluids in the airway contraindicates video laryngoscopy, but that's false. However, it is more difficult to suction fluids if you're using a hyperangulated blade because like the endotracheal tube, the suction catheter doesn't easily get around the curve. And standard geometry video laryngoscopy uses the same skill set as direct laryngoscopy, which has important implications for training. Let's spend a moment on training because training is all over the place. Training. Both hyperangulated and standard video laryngoscopy are far superior and far more important in 2021 to master than direct laryngoscopy. Again, the only reason you need to know DL is in case you don't have access to VL. And the way to get good at DL is to learn video first, specifically standard geometry video. You should not be attempting direct until you are very comfortable with video because VL is how you learn the anatomy, which you can barely see with DL. And VL is how you learn laryngoscopy technique because you're attending barking, what do you see now? What do you see now? What do you see now? While you're trying to figure out what the hell you're looking at is not a recipe for success. So video first. And the skills you hone learning SGVL work with your intuition and apply to direct laryngoscopy, much less so with hyperangulated. And once you get good at standard, you can pretty easily learn HAVL. It's not automatic. It's a different technique that you will not easily figure out yourself, but it is much harder to acquire the skills you need to do standard blade video and direct if you learn HAVL first, because getting a good view, which is the whole challenge with SGVL and direct, 
is so freaking easy with HAVL. Therefore, the right way to learn laryngoscopy is to get comfortable with standard geometry video, then acquire the separate skill of hyperangulated video, and then start practicing direct with your standard geometry blade. Summary. So to summarize, our airway technology has come a long way, and in just the past decade or so, most emergency departments have access to video laryngoscopes that allow the operator to choose among different blade sizes and shapes instantly. To take advantage of this, know the strengths and weaknesses of the different blade geometries, and let's put the DL to VL debate to rest. You just heard the facts from Rails. Back in February 2021, we had Salim Rezai, founder and editor-in-chief of Rebel Yaman, to discuss time to lytics and the challenges and dangers of pushing for faster and faster. We mentioned in that segment that there was some recent literature re-examining some of the stroke data upon which our current paradigm is based. Clearly, we need to get into that data, and so we've got Salim back on. Welcome back, Salim. It is time for Salim Rezai. Swami, thanks for having me on. You know, you and I agree completely, I think, on lytics and how it should get used clinically. I think that you and I could talk about this for 10 hours and still not convince a lot of people. But hey, great excuse to get together, great excuse to hang out, and a great excuse to talk shop. Always enjoy hanging out with you, Swami. I could not agree more, Salim. It's always good for us to get together and talk about this stuff. But let's get into the topic at hand. Let's get into this lytics reanalysis. Prior to the newish data that's been out, what studies are out there that actually guide our management of lytics? And, and what I should say is, what studies are out there that tell us we should be using lytics? Yeah, there's really only two positive acute ischemic stroke trials that I'm aware of that talk about thrombolysis and stroke. There was NINS published in 1995, and then there was ECAS-3 published in 1998. And if we look at the number needed to treat, if we believe those trials, it was nine for NINS and it was 20 for ECAS-3 in terms of improved neurologic outcomes. Now, importantly, there's 11 other negative trials looking at thrombolysis for acute ischemic stroke. And there are some people out there that say, well, we can't compare all these trials because some of them use streptokinase, some of them use tenecteplase. And so I like to compare apples to apples. So specifically, we have two positive trials looking at alteplase, and we have six negative trials looking at alteplase. NINS is the classic one. Everybody knows about it. It gave us the three-hour window for using lytics. ECAS-3 expanded that window up to four and a half hours. It's important to note, too, the number needed to harm. Yes, it did seem to be a benefit in those two studies, but there was a number needed to harm as well. That was the symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. In the NINS study, the number needed to harm was 16. In the ECAS-3 study, the number needed to harm was about 40, but there was a tenfold increase from the placebo arm to the lytics arm in terms of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. The NINS data has been tortured and reviewed multiple times, but the classic one was by Jerry Hoffman back in 2009. Let's just summarize, what did Jerry and his research colleagues conclude in their review? So before I get to that, can I just start with one thing, Swami? And I think it's this concept of fragility index. And the fragility index for NINS was three. So what do I mean by fragility index for those people who aren't familiar with that term? In other words, what I'm trying to say is that it only would be three patients to have a different outcome to change the study from a positive to a negative trial, okay? Three patients is what we're talking about. When Hoffman did his reanalysis, what he was doing was correcting for confounders such as baseline stroke severity and pre-existing disability 
that could have swayed the results to an already, and I'm doing air quotes, fragile study to show benefit of Alteplase. So the bottom line of his reanalysis was that most patients who survive improve in neurologic status regardless of treatment. There may have been some signal of benefit in patients with a NIH value between 5 and 22, but it was the exact opposite for everybody outside of that range. In other words, there was more harm when we gave Alteplase to anybody outside that range. Essentially, the reanalysis doesn't contradict Nin's claims, but rather states that more data is needed. And we've been calling for more data, but we never got it. We never got the recreation of Nin's. Instead, the subsequent research simply focused on trying to expand the target group, and that all culminated with ECAS-3. In ECAS-3, we expanded that window up to four and a half hours, and that brings us to our second reanalysis, the real reason why we're here today, which is why Alper and colleagues thrombolysis with Alteplase three to four and a half hours after acute ischemic stroke trial reanalysis adjusted for baseline imbalances published in 2020. There's a lot in the title itself, but what was the impetus? Why did they do this reanalysis? I mean, exactly what you said, and the same concerns with NINs. You know, they're just basically, there was these baseline imbalances in stroke severity between groups, and that biases the results of the trial to favor Alteplase. And everybody's been kind of saying the same thing. So kudos to the authors for sitting down and trying to balance this out and try and get us a more honest answer. And Salim, you and I, and a lot of our colleagues, have just been bitching and moaning about those baseline imbalances. Alper and his colleagues, they sat down and said, let's just get this out of the way. Let's just do the reanalysis and find out what we see. And let's talk about it. What did they find? So we talked about a fragility index of three for NINs. Let's talk about a fragility index of one for ECAS-3. In other words, only one patient would have to have a different outcome to change the study from a positive to a negative in terms of neurologic outcomes. So again, a quote unquote fragile result, even before this reanalysis, so with their reanalysis, what they actually showed was no statistical difference in treatment effect of Alteplase versus placebo in any of the outcomes except one Swami, and that was an increase in symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage with Alteplase, which we already know when you give patients Alteplase, you're increasing their risk of intracranial hemorrhage. You mentioned earlier how we have really not just the two studies, but 11 studies looking at lytics in stroke, and each study shows an increased risk of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage with the thrombolytic arm. So that's something that is held up across study, no matter which study you look at. What does all of this mean? What does this reanalysis mean for the three to four and a half hour window? I mean, for me, it's simple. I mean, we just have zero randomized clinical trials now after this reanalysis supporting the practice of thrombolysis, especially in that three to four and a half hour window in acute ischemic stroke. Here's the million dollar question, Celine, because we work in systems. We don't work as lone practitioners in the middle of nowhere. We don't work in a vacuum. We talked about this so many times. Jerry has been talking about this for so many years. How does this change what you do in your system? I think the answer is it doesn't change anything at a system level because all of us have these stroke core measures that are tied to reimbursement at a system level. And I suspect if the guidelines and the reimbursements don't change, Neither will our practice. If we're basically following along with the system recommendations, the system that's currently in place, why know about the reanalysis at all? Just because a system level change is slow, it doesn't mean that we can't change our behaviors at the individual level. So for me, where the, the rubber meets the road is something called shared decision-making. And we use this in so many other aspects of patient care. I think, you know, in this type of scenario, this is the perfect scenario for shared decision-making Tell the patient the facts, 
let them make the decision for themselves. Talk to the family members in the cases where the patient can't talk. And hopefully one day the guidelines will catch up. I'm not holding my breath. I don't know about you, Swami, but it doesn't mean at the individual level at the bedside, we can't change how we talk to patients. I'm not holding my breath either. I agree with you. The shared decision-making piece of this is important. How we have this discussion with our patients framed in what we now know. I also think it advises us in the future for other issues that come up that we should demand the best research before we change what we do. We shouldn't be accepting these trials that have huge imbalances where there's other studies that say it doesn't work because sometimes you'll get this result. You'll get a result that's positive. It doesn't mean that's the truth. And I think that's what we really have to take away from these reanalyses is in the future when we see these, what looks to be too good to be true, it might very well be too good to be true. We have to look at that, analyze it deeply before we decide to adopt it. Because once we've adopted it, it's really hard to move back. Salim, thank you so much for coming on and, and squaring this for everybody and, and helping everybody understand what these reanalyses mean, how it should inform our practice. And my guess is that we're going to have more. We're going to have more stroke-related stuff or just more evidence-based medicine stuff that we're going to bring you back for. So I can't wait to get back on and talk more about evidence-based medicine. Thank you so much, Swami. It's always fun talking about this stuff. I realize this is controversial and at a system level, it can be very frustrating. But I think at the end of the day, each of us is going to be an advocate for our patients. And I think it's important to be up to date with the most current evidence. And that's all you and I are doing is just sitting down and, and chatting it out and letting people know that you need to be informed when we're talking to our patients for Lytics. So thank you so much. And I am humbled every time you invite me on. Res I E. Rick's Rants is an opinion segment and represents the opinions of Dr. Rick Bucata and does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of MRAP as a whole. If you're listening to these opinions and you think, hey, I disagree with that, Rick encourages you to share your opinion with him. Please direct your thoughts to Rick via our website. Do not send them to Mel Herbert as he is not Rick Bucata. Mel's the Australian one. Crikey. Thank you. Hey, before we get started here, I thought I would jump in and say a few quick words. Rick Bucata has taken on an enormously difficult topic, but as is always the case with Rick, he's not afraid to get in there and get amongst it and have the difficult discussion. So for the last few months, he's been talking about the roles of PAs and nurse practitioners in the emergency department. He's talked about the emergency physician sort of workforce document that says that uh, perhaps we've got or we will have in the near future too many emergency physicians and what are we going to do about that? And I really appreciate that he's done it, even though when it started, we knew that there would be some controversy here. And uh, mostly the discussion has been really positive, but some of the discussion really has been quite negative and personally attacking one of the founders of Emergency Medicine and MRAP, but you know, whatever, but it's really the attacks on Rick, which have been kind of bizarre. He was there at the beginning. He was fighting the fights with the surgeons and the internists when they didn't want us around, when they didn't think we were trained, when they thought we were going to take their jobs. So it's kind of bizarre to uh, have to you know, read some of these comments, but Rick has continued on because he thinks the discussion needs to continue, and so he's going to continue it. We've even had some people said they're getting rid of their MRAP subscription because we dared have an opinion piece about this. I find that pretty bizarre because I don't cancel my subscriptions when I see an opinion piece on the stuff that I watch or listen to that I disagree with. So everybody's ramped up. And this is what I am seeing here, that everybody is really stressed. Look, you've been through a pandemic. You've been at the front lines. There's been social unrest, political unrest. And then you're worried, oh my gosh, and now, now maybe my job is not going to be as good as it was 10 years ago, and I've still got all this huge debt. I get it. But just make sure that we keep it professional and make sure that the angst is directed at the right place. And the right place has got to be places like AEM and ASEP and trade organizations. And as you'll see, the RRC, 
ABEM, you know, if we're going to manage this, and I think we can, if we're going to manage this so that we all come out pretty unscathed and actually potentially even better off, we better make sure we direct our angst at the right place. And I'm going to summarize at the end where I think the opportunities are, and I think there's some real opportunities, real opportunities, particularly for a specialty which has such high burnout, real opportunities. But let's have Rick speak with Peter Vicello, who has also been doing this a very long time, who has that long view, who can help us out with understanding uh, where we can go with this. Well, hello and welcome. It's Rick Vicello again. Time to rant. Last month, we talked with Dave Steberg, who uh, with USACs is running or responsible for seven residencies in emergency medicine. I want to talk still about this issue about the report that ASEP released a couple of weeks ago, which by the time you hear this will be about six months ago. And I've got Peter Vicelli on the line. Peter, I've known for at least 25 years. Peter is at a legacy program in New York, State University of New York. He's been there 33 years. Peter, welcome to the MRAP rant. Thank you, Rick. Peter, I've asked you to be on board because... You watched with me the report that ASAP gave of their study, and a lot of it focused on residencies. And you have been, you're number two at Stony Brook. You've been there a long time. You've seen a lot of the evolution of emergency medicine. And I felt that you would have some thoughts about this issue. I know that you do. I know that there are some careful areas we have to kind of be a little bit about. But I asked you, Peter, because you are an opinionated fellow. And so I thought you probably have some interesting perspectives on that report, particularly on the supply end. What do you think about the supply end of emergency physicians? Well, first off, I think that report should have been done five years ago. And I think the only motivation for it being done now is because of COVID, with physicians being laid off, with salaries being cut, and for the first time ever in our program, our residents actually struggled a little bit to find a job. That was brand new. The short-term and long-term future in terms of volume recovery, I'm not really sure of, and I'm not sure of it for a few reasons. We had all sorts of urgent care places spring up around us for years, for the last 10 years. I mean, there was one in every bedroom practically. But we never really saw a decrease in our volume, nor did we see a decrease in our, what you would call fast track sorts of patients. And my sense was that most of the urgent care business was new business. Yes. Were patients who, I'm not sick enough to go to the emergency department. I can't get a doctor's office appointment, but now there's this urgent care place I can go to and they can see me. But then COVID hit, and there were several changes. First off, our volume dropped dramatically. All of a sudden, people quit having appendicitis and heart attacks and strokes and all this other stuff. I don't know what happened to Very them in this period of time. Yeah, but it was, it was nice of them to do that. But there's two big things that happened that I think may permanently impact on our volume. The first was that people went to the urgent care places for things that they would normally have gone to an emergency department for. And now they are used to going to the urgent care places. And that's where they will continue to go. And they like it. They don't have to wait. Well, I shouldn't say that all ERs make people wait, but but we, we don't have a good reputation in that regard. And these people in the urgent care centers would say, listen, if you can't handle these cases, we'll be happy to take them off your hands. And they made a whole industry out of it. But I think the second very dramatic change is the whole issue about can you get into your doctor's office? 
well, you don't need to get into your doctor's office anymore because they have been doing telemedicine for the last year and will continue to do so. And a lot of those urgent complaints that, oh, I couldn't see my doctor, so I'm going to come to the emergency department, they can now have a telemedicine visit with their doctor, and a lot of those problems will get taken care of. So I think that there are possibly permanent changes in the volume of patients that we'll see in emergency medicine. Now, in terms of where we're heading with emergency medicine, obviously, we work in the emergency department and take care of emergencies. Observation medicine has exploded in the last several years. Not every place is doing it, but I think ultimately, when you can cut down admissions by finishing up workups like chest pains and TIAs and and syncopes and this sort of stuff in the emergency department, we will be expected to do that. And if you think about it, it's sort of an interesting switch from let's get them in and get them out as quick as we can to let's hold on to them for 18 hours (laughs) and work them up the uh, wazoo. I think there's also been an explosion of interest in critical care within emergency medicine. We have a resuscitation fellowship at Stony Brook. I think there's one other one in the country, but another big expanse in emergency medicine in the last five to 10 years has been developing ED-based ICUs. And I think if we marry to that, then that will also be a, a source of work for emergency physicians. By the way, the data on this is that about a third of patients who need ICU care need it for a day or less. So rather than building more ICU beds upstairs and all these silos, do they go to the MICU, the SICU, the CCU, whatever else, is a lot of these patients will be able to turn around in a critical care unit in the emergency department and then somebody else take care of them downstream. We take care of all our DKAs now in the emergency department. I agree that there's a lot of interest in critical care, and I have a friend, actually, who did emergency medicine residency and did several fellowships. Now, these are one-year kind of things, and he now is working in an ICU and in the emergency department, but I don't think most medical staffs are going to allow non-fellowship-trained physicians to work in their ICU, so that requires a substantial additional investment. If you want to expand your capabilities and work in ICU, then just saying, you know, I'd like to work in the ICU. It doesn't just work that way. Well, right now, that's true. Why couldn't we develop our own fellowship? You know, there, look, when, we, when you and I started in emergency medicine, there were a lot of things we couldn't do. No, Rapid sequence true. intubation, oh, my God, how could you let an emergency physician do that? We own, you know, we own so much of that stuff now. So yes, you know, things about- change over time. You know, there's two parts of this. One of them was on the supply end, which is kind of your end. And, you know, and there were some concerns about too many residencies. A lot of these residencies started out most recently in non-university affiliated places. Many of them, you know, they all passed RRC credentials. You know, RRC is not a spigot to turn the volume of people on and off. But they're suggesting that, well, let's make every residency four years. Let's look at the number of procedures that people have to do to complete a residency, which may then raise the bar for more places that are just meeting that number or maybe not even meeting it. So there was a a focus on closing off the spigot, which will take time. And, you know, I don't know that the RRC's job is to basically control the number of emergency physicians. Theoretically, the job is to ascertain 
what are the requirements to make an emergency physician? And so that's kind of what they're supposed to do. As far as I understand, they can't just dial the spigot up or down. Sure. But they right. can indirectly do that by elevating the requirements for a residency program. Well, that was the whole point is what they were saying is, well, let's look, let's hope that the RRC will uh, look at this and up the ante. They also said, well, let's raise the salary of, yeah, obviously they, you know, ASAP can't talk, can't, they can say we raise the salary, but they can't do it for crying out loud. So there's, they made a number of suggestions, which range in plausibility from perhaps to no way, actually. I think the only plausible way to shrink the spigot is elevating the standards. I've been shocked by the number of programs in my area at places that I'm familiar with that have been approved for residency training. I'm just, I'm surprised by it. And I think you can elevate the standards. Some programs aren't going to be able to meet them. And that would shrink the number of programs that way. You can go from three-year to four-year programs, but that's not going to shrink the numbers by that much. That's right. That's a one-year fix. Once you've done that, uh, I don't think the numbers really change uh, all that much. It would shrink it by less than 1,000 or something like 500 or, or something. It's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't match up to what's needed. Now, this, when I read the report, they said they projected that emergency physicians, after they finish residency, they retire after 30 years. My plan is to retire after 60 years. Actually, my plan is work and then die. Work, die. That's a, <laughs> yes, a you, very simple retirement plan. Yes, that's the exit strategy, as they say, drop. I think that uh, I know some other people who have a, such a similar philosophy. I was familiar with a federal government study in 2017 that said we're going to have too many emergency physicians, which it was reported in 2017, which must have been, you know, must have taken them a year or so before that to get the numbers. One area that where there is a shortage, and I understand that some emergency medicine groups have taken over this arena, has been hospital medicine. Obviously, it's not in our scope of practice at the end of emergency medicine, but if you did a year's fellowship, this is an area of uh, where there is definitely a substantial shortage, where there'd be an opportunity to get involved in that. The other thing that would happen with hospital medicine is hospitalists are used to rounding on their patients once a day, and you order something today, you look at it tomorrow. Imagine an emergency physician is a hospitalist. I want the test now. I want the results now. I'm going to act on it now. Your length of stay shrinks from six days to three days, and you don't you have capacity now. You don't, no, you don't that's have true. boarding and crowding. I do know emergency groups who uh, are supplying the hospitalists to the uh, hospital. I think, though, that most of those folks are coming out of internal medicine. And internal medicine is one of those areas, like family medicine, which is still going to be short of doctors in 2030. So. It's not like there's going to be this glut of uh, internists out there. When you survey medical students' experience, unfortunately, the emergency department is filled with people that are having a really good time and they're loving what they do. And they don't see that when they do a lot of other rotations. They see a lot of stress, clouds hanging over the heads of people. So this is, we're, we're a fun specialty. That's why so many people want to go into it. I think that's true. But Rick, I think that this is going to be a big problem for emergency medicine, both for physicians, nurse practitioners, and PAs, is the whole workforce issue. I think we need to be in this together. 
all of us, and it needs to be addressed some way. Otherwise, you know, the market will come into play. Despite all these challenges, these challenges that are here now and potentially in the future, would these guys do it again? Going to medical school is the best thing you ever did in your life, I think. Oh, it's the greatest. Look, Rick, what you and I have done is just the greatest gig in the world. It's just, this has been an absolutely wonderful career for both of us. To this day, uh, my favorite part of the week is just going in, working a shift with uh, with the residents and MPs and PAs. The nursing staff is fantastic. And I love seeing patients, love teaching. It's just a, 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 a real privilege to be able to be in a position to do what we do. Well, you know, Peter, I think that is a really a wonderful reflection on your career. I think that it is a very cool specialty. I, I still think that. And I hope that there can be some resolution to this because one of the things I took pride in is certainly in the last, I guess, eight or 10 years, I think num- emergency medicine was number two in terms of the specialties that were sought out uh, next to internal medicine. And internal medicine is so so huge that they're going to be mathematically number one all the time anyway. But but it was it was it was uh, my pride was that the best and the brightest were applying for emergency medicine. That was one of the sources of pride. I don't think that will change because well, because I, I think the best and the brightest are not going to struggle because they're the best and the brightest. Peter, thanks so much. I always enjoy talking with you. You've been a friend for a long, 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 long time. And I appreciate your insights. Rick, it's uh, been great talking to you. So I just wanted to summarize some of the things to think about. Like if you're a resident right now and you're hearing this, you're like, dang, the workforce is going to be really tough in the years ahead for emergency medicine. What should I do about that? I mean, I think if you're out and you've got a job and you've got experience, you don't have to worry, but it's for the new people coming up. So again, think about these things. Think about a critical care fellowship, two years at the end of your emergency medicine fellowship. That greatly, greatly expands your possibilities. And I know that there's a lot of critical care EM people that just love working in the emergency department and then love working in the ICU. So that's something to consider. Now, some of these other ones are a bit more vague, but this hospitalist thing I think is really important. You don't have to have a special hospitalist degree to be a hospitalist. They tend to be internists, but there's really good reasons why they should be emergency physicians for those reasons which were outlined, which is that you have this tendency to be able to move the meat very quickly. In addition to that, you have a particular set of skills when it comes to procedures, which often the internists do not have. And so therefore, your ability to work on the floors is also extraordinarily good. Now, you might have some deficits compared to internal medicine in terms of some of the knowledge base, but I think you can clear that hurdle on your own, or you can clear that hurdle perhaps in the future by, this is kind of strange, you know how in Canada, you can do family medicine, and then you can do a certificate in emergency medicine. One day, it could happen the other way, that you do emergency medicine and then maybe do a one-year certificate in internal medicine so that you can sort of hang your hat as being an even more trained hospitalist. As Rick has said, there is just not enough internal medicine people, so it'll be interesting to see how this goes. There is a very large hospital here in town that has a group that does procedures. They're inpatient proceduralists. So if you need a central line put in, they come and put the central line in. If you need uh, an abscess drain, they come and drain the abscess. And a lot of the people on those teams are ER docs because of the particular set of skills that you develop. So there's another area. Telemedicine is obviously huge. I want you to consider this possibility, that there's all of these clinics out there and there's not enough sort of docs to go and work in rural areas. But what about what the radiologists did? They bought themselves homes in Tuscany so that they could do the night reads while sipping Chardonnay 
in the middle of the day due to the time difference. Imagine that your group is now going to do the same thing. You're going to be the telemedicine, emergency medicine group that helps out all these little clinics and all these other places. And you're the one sipping Chardonnay in Italy, somewhere nice and cute. It sounds pretty wonderful, actually. Observation medicine, it's exploding. There's only going to be more of it. So another opportunity. You have the particular set of skills. And obviously a big one is urgent care. And again, I agree with Peter. I think that the pandemic has made people sort of go to the urgent care and they like it. And a lot of these urgent cares have gotten very good at seeing lots of people very quickly. But I can tell you what's happened in my experience with my friends with the urgent cares around this area. There's some urgent cares that are basically run by people who are trained in emergency medicine. And then there are urgent cares by people who are not trained in emergency medicine. And over time, these people, these friends who are not docs, end up going to the one where the ER docs are. And why? Because they can fix the broken bone. They can put on the splint. They can suture. They can do a bunch of stuff which some of these other urgent cares who don't have those people who with that particular training can't do and they get really frustrated. Just last week, I had a friend call me really frustrated because they went to an urgent care and they couldn't get the laceration on their son's head sewn up because the person working there wasn't comfortable doing it. That's crazy. ER doc can do that. So urgent care, I know, I don't really understand the economics of that. I know that a lot of ER groups have looked at it and said, well, it's kind of tough uh, economically to do that. But I think those economics are going to change. So you might see again this explosion of urgent cares run by ER docs. And my final spiel would be, I think the real opportunity here is for you in the future to have a very interesting mixed practice. The practice of emergency medicine in the emergency department, sick people, lots of people bugging you, not being able to find a bed, all of the stresses that go on the emergency department. There's a reason why emergency medicine is right up the top. All docs are stressed out. All of them have a feeling of burnout. But there's a reason that in that New England Journal study, we were right up the top. But if you can mix your practice, you're doing a little ICU, you're doing some urgent care, you're doing some inpatient stuff, you're doing some observation stuff, you're in Tuscany, you're having the Chardonnay, there's a real opportunity for the group of people that are graduating in the next five to 10 years to have an even more interesting practice than my generation did, or the generation that was Rick's and Peter's. I think there's an enormous opportunity here. And if you just spend a little time thinking about, well, how could I make this job even better? I think there's huge opportunity. And that's what I want to leave you with. I don't want to underplay the angst. I get it. It's real. But we're going to do something with that, something positive with that. And finally, I will reiterate, be the best and brightest. Be the smartest. Do the extra education. Be the nicest to the patients and the support staff and everybody else in the emergency department. Be that person and you significantly improve your chances of finding a job anywhere. Herbert out. So, Brian, thanks so much. It's great to talk to you again. You as well, Gita. I'm glad that we're going to be able to do this segment together. So I think most of our listeners know that adverse events to drugs and polypharmacy are a really big problem for our geriatric patients. You know, they can cause sedation, confusion, falls, worse. But I find it really hard to keep track of exactly what to avoid and, and when. And sometimes, honestly, we feel like our hands are tied. When an elderly patient comes in needing something acutely, but everything we normally use is on the naughty list, essentially. Yeah, I totally agree with this sentiment. And I think we live in a time now, in a good way, where 
There's a lot of focus on geriatric patients in the ED. Some places actually have separate areas that are more geriatric friendly in their environments. So I think that bringing this topic around now in that environment is is the perfect time. Yeah, at my shop, we don't have a separate geriatric emergency department. We do have Dr. Liz Goldberg, um, <laughs> who is in a really great job of putting this on our radar um, at Brown. So I wanted to, just to chat with you about just a few classes of drugs that we use frequently in the ED and how we should think about their use in the elderly. And the first thing I want to talk to you about is the beers criteria. Exactly. And as an elderly patient, I need to know what beers to stay away from. IPAs, lagers, no, stouts. No, that's not. Okay, a pale ale. No, that's not what Baltic it is. Style porter. Stop. Or a Belgian Stop. style double. Stop. Those it. are the kinds that would say. Stop. We, those so what is the beers criteria and why do they exist? And I, I know we're going to get into a little bit about how we take them with a grain of salt, because when you read it you know, sort of verbatim, it, it makes you feel like you can't do anything. But we'll talk about that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. And we'll probably stress that a couple of times throughout our conversation today. So these first came out way back in 1991, and they were meant to be a way to identify medications or medication classes that should be avoided in older adults in nursing homes. And that's the part that we forget. It's kind of like the way that we use urine drug screens now when that, that's, they were not intended for medical use way back when they were developed. This is the same thing. So initially they were for nursing homes, not for ED patients. Now it's used in most clinical scenarios. Basically since 1991, every couple of years, Dr. Beers updated and published the criteria. And he unfortunately passed away back in 2011. And since that time, the American Geriatric Society has taken up the gauntlet and published it every couple of years. So the most recent one or the current one is from 2019. And importantly, there was a nice editorial that was published alongside it, and it outlined seven key principles to consider in terms of using the Beers criteria. Can we run through them real quick? Seven key principles. So the first one is the one that you sort of brought up earlier, and I think is the most important is that inappropriate medicines, medications listed in this criteria are potentially inappropriate, not definitely inappropriate. And I think what you said earlier does tie our hands a lot where we look at the list and say, oh my gosh, everything I want to use is off limits. But what they're saying here is that that's not necessarily true. Just with every choice, you just got to think about, is there a better choice um, or is this the right one for my patient? So that's number one and most important. Okay, so they're not completely contraindicated. We just need to think about their use. That's exactly right. Read caveats. So number two, they say read the rationale and recommendation statements for each criterion. The caveats and guidance listed there are important. So I like this because if you look at the table, you can just kind of see a list of all these drugs that you should avoid. But if you really get into it, they'll actually explain why the drug is there, which types of elderly patients it should be avoided in, and it can kind of help guide you to say like, oh, that actually doesn't apply, or that one does apply, maybe I should really avoid that one. So nope, that's number two. Okay. Understand why meds are included. Number three, understand why medications are included in the beers criteria. And as an ED practitioner, you are not going to have the time in a busy shift to sit down and ponder why the medication is included. But fortunately, they give you some quick notes to help you along. And we're going to talk about one in a little while, nitrofurantoin, which was a sort of a pet peeve of mine of being on this list. And we're going to talk about basically this number three of understanding why. Okay, that was three. What about the rest? Four. Time to... So the rest, I don't think are important for our listeners to necessarily know right now. So, <laughs> so I think that they, they apply for sort of broader 
patient populations than just the ED, and they're not really applicable to what we're doing at the at the bedside. So I think if we focus on the first three, we can we can just move on to our first class. That works for me. Five. Remember to check. But in, in essence, it seems like their point is that we should know what's on the list, know why it, it's on the list, and then take that with a grain of salt if we don't have any other better alternatives. Yes, which is good because that's what we do every day anyway. I think we sometimes hear terms like black box warning or boxed warning that is currently called Beer's criteria, et cetera, and we assume that we should avoid these medications at all cost. And in reality, we need to be careful and think through the benefits and risks in each patient because a lot of them may be appropriate, especially in an ED environment. Okay, so let's just look at some of the classes and individual drugs that are on the list that we commonly encounter in the ED. So let's just start with antihistamines. Antihistamines. So what should we think about when we're using antihistamines in the elderly? Yeah, this is a great one to start with because we use antihistamines. Patients take a lot of antihistamines in the outpatient setting and then maybe come to see us. And they, as you know, if you've taken diphenhydramine to help you sleep at night, that one particularly is a CNS depressant. And they can be pretty anticholinergic. So, you know, all of those things you think about, urinary retention, dry mouth, all those kind of go along with that. The first generations are the primary culprits here. And those include a lot of the -the over-the-counter stuff, but diphenhydramine is the primary one that we think about. And the second generation agents like loratadine or claritin and fexofenadine or Allegra, those are actually a lot better because they don't have great penetration across the blood-brain barrier. And so they have less CNS effects, which is great in our older adult population. So what I take away from this is that for normal chronic use, older adults should avoid first-generation agents like diphenhydramine as a sleep aid. They also have a slower clearance in this patient population so that the effects of the drugs can last longer than they might in you and me. So that's something to consider as well. Okay, so for general use or seasonal allergies, we'll just stick to those second-generation agents. but. If an elderly person comes in with anaphylaxis, we can still reach for our IV diphenhydramine? Yeah, definitely. A few points I, I wanted to make on this. Number one, we can definitely still use IV diphenhydramine for these life-threatening indications. Obviously, just a quick plug, remember epinephrine is first line and should not be withheld due to older age. Of course. Interestingly, there was a study published in Annals just this year that looked at IV cetirizine or Zyrtec as an alternative to diphenhydramine for urticaria in the ED. So, you know, with uh, drug companies back in that one, I, I assume at some point we may see that as an option in our EDs as well. Which leads me to point number three, though. I specifically did not mention cetirizine as an option in the last point because this one does cross the blood-brain barrier and a lot of folks report drowsiness after taking this. And so this is why Claritin or Allegra may be preferred in older adults. And you mentioned I am epi, yes, first line for anaphylaxis. What should we keep in mind when we're using I am epi in elderly patients? This is one of those things that's, I think, more nice to know. I mean, you, you need to know it also, but it, it's not going to impact your care. And what I mean by that is there are multiple studies now, we can list these in the show notes, that have looked at adverse cardiovascular effects from epinephrine in older adults that received it for anaphylaxis. And yes, the risk increases with age, but the bigger risk is not treating anaphylaxis and so because of fear of adverse effects. So it should be given. Yes, these patients may need extra monitoring outside of normal anaphylaxis monitoring, especially if they're 
over 65, but particularly those that are over 80. And just know that IM epi has a lower risk of adverse effects compared to IV, but most of us are using IM epi as our primary go-to for anaphylaxis anyway, so that shouldn't be that big of an issue. Absolutely. Okay, so let's switch gears. We're going to leave allergy and anaphylaxis and talk about nitrofurantoin, which you mentioned before. I just learned this was on the list. I didn't know this before. I thought it was okay. So it is. <laughs> let's just be clear. It is okay. I was shocked too. I think, I can't remember which iteration. It might've been like around 2011 or 2010 or something. I found it on this list too. And I was like, what, what is this drug doing here? So it was on the list up until 2012. And it's still technically on the list now, but it's a lot looser in terms of its avoidance, which is great. So we'll go through those really quick. They recommended it in older adults because a couple of reasons. One is that it doesn't seem to be effective or it's not effective if patients have a really low creatinine clearance, less than 30. It's also not great in anyone, but particularly older adults for a long-term UTI suppression because that when you're on it for months at a time, you increase your risk of both lung injury and hepatotoxicity. And just to kind of give you, hepatotoxicity may not have even been on your radar as an ED clinician with this drug. And that's because the risk for giving it to a patient for like five days for a normal UTI is three in a million. Whereas patients that take it chronically for months or years is one in 1500. It's a lot higher risk of liver issues when you're on this drug chronically. So where we land on this now is that if a patient, even an older adult, has a creatinine clearance greater than 30 and they have a UTI, you can feel safe using nitrofurantoin for that five-day course. Well, that's good. I'll just keep doing what I was doing. Good to know. NSAIDs. Let's talk about NSAIDs in the elderly now. What should we think about when we're using NSAIDs in the elderly? Just to be fair, I love NSAIDs. I use them in myself <laughs> when I have a headache. But there are a couple things that we need to, to think about, particularly in the elderly patients. And the good thing is that the BEERS criteria lines up with the two boxed warnings that are uh, listed by the FDA for these drugs. One is cardiovascular events. So there is an increase of about seven to eight events per thousand persons per year with NSAIDs compared to not, no NSAIDs. Out of the ones that we use normally in the ED, so I think of ketorolac I, I primarily, but also ibuprofen and naproxen, Naproxen is probably the safest in terms of cardiovascular risk. And then there's a lot of patient factors that affect this risk, like history of cardiovascular disease, male gender, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, but older age is one of those too. So that's why these uh, geriatric patients are, are a little bit higher risk of these cardiovascular effects. And then the other one is GI bleeding or even perforation. It's up to five times higher risk than controls. And the odds ratio is about 5.1 um, in, in the larger studies. And if you look at the patient risk factors for this, it's similar, but it's prior history of a disease that is the GI, GI ulcer, hemorrhage, high doses of NSAIDs, concurrent use of steroids, which we know, and age greater than 60. So both of these boxed warnings and Beer's criteria are within the older age because that's a risk factor for them having these events. Now, is there any sort of guidance for how long are we talking about? You know, if, if I just give someone a dose of, of Ketorolac in the ED, that's one thing. If I send them home on 800 milligrams of ibuprofen TID for a week versus a month, is, is there any kind of guidance in terms of that? You hit the nail on the head. I don't have a specific, like, how many days for an individual patient, but the, in older adults in nursing homes, and that's the part that we forget. 
it's kind of like the way that we use urine drug screens. And so don't don't send them home on, you know, the 800 number 90 pills, take three a day for the next month, maybe five to seven days, depending on why they're, they're using it. And there's actually been a couple of studies in the ED literature from Sergei Motov's group that have looked at sort of this like um, so-called ceiling effect. And we can talk about that a little bit separately. But the, the point being is that a lot of patients can get away with a, just a normal 400 or 600 milligram ibuprofen dose. We don't necessarily need to go to 800 in everybody. Right. And probably especially in, in our older patients. Definitely. Other pain relief agents. So let's talk about other acute pain relief agents. So tell me why we should avoid tramadol in the elderly. Tramadol to hell. <laughs> yeah. So tramadol, if you're on Twitter at all, then and you follow any of the toxicology, emergency medicine, pain folks, you know that tramadol is like the least favorite drug of everyone. And I agree with this. There's, it has, I think the last time we counted, it had like eight or nine boxed warnings. And the reason it's a problem is that people think of it as a safe alternative to opioids. But what it actually is, is a combination product. And what I mean by that is tramadol gets metabolized to this active metabolite, and it has effects on the mu opioid receptor, just like other opioids. So it isn't, it is an opioid. So we, we can't kind of categorize it as a non opioid. But then it also has, effects on serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake. So it's kind of like giving a patient venlafaxin. The problem though, is that the way it's metabolized and that the CYP2D6 enzyme is very genetically dependent. And so you and I might metabolize this drug very differently, which means one of us may have no effect at all. One of us may have sort of a normal effect and one may have an exaggerated effect. And we can't predict that ahead of time. So that makes it problematic in anyone, but particularly in older adults. And then if you combine that with its risk of hospitalizations because of hypoglycemia, its risk of seizures or lowering the seizure threshold, you end up in this kind of like, you're giving a patient a drug you're hoping is going to help with their pain, but it actually has a lot more risk of side effects than what you might get benefit from the pain. I'm on Twitter, so I was already convinced, but um, <laughs> perhaps you've convinced everybody else now. Opioids. So now let's talk about actual opioids in the elderly? Yes. What I would do, particularly if you're starting with a drug like morphine, you can always give more. So I like to start, I, I know if you look in the textbook, it might say, you know, give up to 0.1 mg per kilo, which, you know, could be like eight milligrams or something in a, in a normal person. That's a, probably too much for an older adult. So what, start with two. Then never start with one because the nurse, the, the vials come in two milligram sizes, and which means they'll have to do a lot more work to waste the other milligram. So start with two. But you can always add more. So if two doesn't work, then you can try four and you get a better sense for how the patient's going to respond. And I think that most of us are aware of the increased incidence of, of confusion and sedation and constipation when we're using opioids with our older patients. And that's definitely something to consider. And that's why we try as much as possible to use things like lidocaine patches if it might be an option for the patient. We've actually added a low-dose ketamine and lidocaine IV to our armamentarium at RED for pain relief. So we can tr we have a couple of other options before opioids, but you're right in that they can cause mental status changes, which could complicate the, the picture for you. Low-dose ketamine. So how about low-dose ketamine in the elderly for acute pain? Do you have data for us about that? The, the studies so far have included a, um, some degree of older adults, and we've used it a couple times, and, and it seems to be okay. So and they've actually really liked it and it's, it's helped their pain and we didn't have to worry. We use an even lower dose than the studies. We're using like 10 and 15 milligram doses. 
but they it, they work pretty well. Awesome. Sulfonyl ureas. Okay, so moving on. Even though we're not usually the primary prescribers of these, what should we know about sulfonyl ureas in the elderly? Because they're all on one. Yeah, I think it's important to talk about this, not because we're going to prescribe them, but because you're right that they come in and then, or they come in, you know, unresponsive or confused and diaphoretic and they're hypoglycemic. You know, EMS finds them with a finger stick of 27 and, and they come into your ED and they're on one of these drugs. And they, the problem with them, particularly the elderly patients, is, is that they last a while. So interestingly, gliburide and glimepiride are on the list, and glipizide, which is a super common one, is not on the list. And the reason is that glipizide is the shortest acting, which makes it preferred in the older adult population. And remember, the way that these work is that you have to have somewhat of a functioning pancreas because these stimulate the pancreas to secrete insulin when it sees glucose. And so if a patient isn't eating, maybe they have uh, an infection or for whatever reason they're not eating, but they're still taking their drug, they can still get hypoglycemic and can last a while. Okay. So glipizide, if we're choosing something de novo, glipizide is what we're going to go with. I'd say remember G for good, but they all start with G. (laughs) (laughs) Totally true. One additional point I'll make with this is that there's a a risk of an increased risk of hypoglycemia if a patient is on a sulfonylurea and you combine it with Bactrim. Bactrim has kind of lo- slowly gone down on my, my uh, rank list for antibiotics because it actually has a lot of drug interactions. I always forget about the, the ACE inhibitor one. I think the one, the one helpful warning for me for my EMR is when I prescribe Bactrim and they're on an ARB or an ACE yeah. inhibitor. I'm like, oh my God, I totally forgot. So I guess this is another one we should think of. We should. And you know, geriatric patients, generally speaking, are on more medications. And so the risk of one of those medications interacting with Bactrim is, is higher. So it's just something to think about. All right. Okay. Very helpful. Benzos and antipsychotics. Let's talk about benzodiazepines and antipsychotics at the same time. Both are on the naughty list. We have these geriatric patients that come in with dementia and they're agitated and our go-tos are, you know, usually benzos or, you know, an antipsychotic. And what should we be doing? Yeah, this one's tough. Not even just because of the beers criteria, just because this type of patient is just really hard to take care of in the ED. So for antipsychotics, what the criteria say is that there's an increased risk of ischemic stroke and greater rate of cognitive decline and mortality in persons with dementia. Now, this is more, again, for longer term use. This isn't for like, oh my gosh, I need to give some IV or IM olanzapine because this patient is really agitated. So they say avoid antipsychotics for behavioral problems of dementia or delirium, unless other options have failed. How I apply this to the ED is that agitation in patients over 65 in the ED is challenging. It's usually multifactorial. As you know, it's also difficult to differentiate dementia from delirium versus some underlying condition versus psych infection, all these things. And it's, it's really challenging to figure out what's going on. The environment is generally not conducive to quiet and restfulness, <laughs> as you are aware. Patients are at risk for missing home medications that normally would help with this. So one of the first things you should think about is what's their home med list? Are they missing something that would be helping control this delirium or dementia or whatever it is? Let me get that to them. And this is even more challenging during COVID because family members are often unlikely to be able to be with the patient, which sucks, you know? So we actually created an ED agitation guideline and it has a specific section for older adults. And I'm happy to even include this in the show notes to share it with folks. We have a geriatric ED specialist, Maura Kennedy, at our shop, and and she and many others have uh, helped us create this. And so if I have a 
you know, a severely agitated older adult, depending on what's the cause, psychiatric versus dementia versus, you know, Parkinson's, Lewy body disease versus unknown. We have sort of a specific algorithm of here's our first line option, here's our second line option for these specific disease states. So that's really helpful to have too. Awesome. Thank you. We will put a link to that in the show notes as well. Summary. All right. So we ran through several classes of drugs that are in the beers criteria. This is by no means exhaustive. There will be a link in the show notes to the AGS beers criteria, most recently updated in 2019. So definitely check that out. And also, I want to make you aware of an app that's put out by the American Geriatric Society called iGeriatrics that can put the beers criteria and lots of other considerations for elderly patients at your fingertips. So Brian, as we wrap things up here, any parting advice for us when considering prescribing in the elderly? Sure. Just three quick summary points here. One is, remember, the beers criteria are helpful, but not prescriptive. If a drug is the right one to give in a certain situation, weigh the benefits and risks and discuss them with the patient and, and go for it if you need to. Number two, the criteria weren't initially designed for use in the ED, so they aren't easy to directly apply in our work environment. So just keep that in mind as well. And then the third one, which may be the most important, is always look at the home med list. Often enough, you'll find a potential cause for an older adult's ED presentation from an inadvertent overdose or drug interaction from polypharmacy or misdoses. And so you might get your answer just by looking at the home med list. Absolutely critical to remember. Thank you so much, Brian. We always appreciate your expertise. See what I mean, Grandpa? It's about what drugs are not good for you, not what beers are not good for you. Okay? I think it's about beers. It's, it's not. No. It says beers in the name. No. No. Dr. Beers was about beers. Maybe he made stuff about no, beers. What are you talking about? Your style barley, wine, ale. Did you listen you know, to the segment? Beer, it's not about beer. beers. Contemporary ghosts. It's about the beers American criteria. And again, these are the kind nope. of things that you expect no. from beer criteria. Barrel no, not. beer. Not. That's fine. You know, uh, you're ruining this segment. Brian Hayes. We're here again with Dr. Larissa May, Professor of Emergency Medicine at UC Davis and Director of Antibiotic Stewardship. Larissa May, the steward of antibiotics. And today we are going to tackle the topic of neutropenic fever. And by we, I mainly mean you. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, no, this is not an easy topic. I confess, having been involved in antibiotic stewardship for about 10 years now, the subject of febrile neutropenia in the emergency department is definitely not an easy one to tackle at the bedside. So Larissa, let's run a common scenario. A patient is seven to 10 days out from their last chemotherapy treatment, which should put them about at their nadir for their neutrophil count. And they get sent in by their oncologist because they reported that they've been having fevers at home. And when they come in, there's no clear source. They're not experiencing dysuria or a cough. Right, there's nothing that's pointing us to one clear, specific etiology. Instead, we have to think about the undifferentiated patient with febrile neutropenia. I want to ask you about the definition of febrile neutropenia. So we had to break it down into those two things. What fever, specifically the temperature, are we talking about? And what is neutropenia? So the definitions that are used by the Infectious Diseases Society of America and the American Society for Clinical Oncology are really any fever of 101. That's 38.3 Celsius. At any point in time, gives you a definition of febrile neutropenia. And then if you have a sustained fever of more than one hour of 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 38 Celsius. That also counts as febrile neutropenia. The other things uh, that we often look at are what is the absolute neutrophil count? 
And so neutropenia is defined as less than 1,000, but then you can have more severe neutropenia that's under 500, which is a lot of these patients that we're going to be seeing. And finally, profound neutropenia is less than 100. I confess I haven't seen as many of those. You know, a lot of those are patients that are bone marrow transplant recipients, and they're typically not released from the hospital at the time that you're going to be seeing this neutropenia. So we get our initial workup. And of course, like you mentioned, we're getting a complete blood count. And that's coming back with a low white blood cell count. And as we start to get the differential back, is there a way that we can estimate what the absolute neutrophil count is? So if you don't have the absolute neutrophil count reported on your CBC with differential, you can also look at the percent neutrophils and add that to the percent bands and multiply that by the white count. Okay, so that formula A and C is equal to the percent of neutrophils plus the percent of bands times white blood cell count. And if you're not good at memorizing formulas, like me, then you can look on Corpendium in the neutropenic fever chapter for a reference. So that's how we're getting our ANC count. And then you've told me about the fever, a sustained fever of 100.4 for over an hour. 38 degrees Celsius. So that poor patient, I guess, just has to pretty much sit there with a thermometer in her mouth for an hour. Just kidding. They are not doing that. Oh, and let me ask you about how we're getting the temperature. How should that temperature be measured? So rectal temperature measurements, as well as rectal exams, should be avoided during neutropenia. And that's really because you can get colonizing organisms in the gut that enter the surrounding mucosa and soft tissues. That's called a neutropenic tifilitis. I mean, we really want to avoid that because that's also a major cause of neutropenic fever. Okay, so no rectal temperatures. So oral temp would be fine for these patients? Oral temp would be fine, yes. So now working through our course here, we have really no clear source on our exam. We have ordered some labs. So in addition to the CBC, what other tests would you be ordering on an undifferentiated febrile patient? So you would want to be looking for a source of infection. So you'd want to get two blood cultures. And you'd ideally want to get one blood culture from a peripheral site and one from any central venous catheter or port that the patient has. If the patient doesn't have a central venous catheter, then you would get two different peripheral sites and send those on. You'd also want to look for other causes of disturbances, like electrolyte disturbances, looking at your transaminases, as well as a bilirubin. And if the patient has upper or lower respiratory tract symptoms, you would also want to get a chest radiograph and consider a respiratory virus panel. So let's talk about starting the empiric antibiotic coverage, since that's something that we want to get started as soon as possible. Actually, there is a goal in terms of the timeline of when we should start antibiotics, Basically, it's as fast as possible. But what is that time goal? So the goal is to get antibiotics into the patient within an hour of triage. And then patients who are going to be discharged as an outpatient, you would need to observe them for four hours. Okay, let's pause there because I'm pretty sure you just said patients who are going to be treated outpatient. We covered this on MRAP a few years ago in one of the segments that I had recorded. But that concept is probably unfamiliar to many people. And to be honest, I haven't done it in the last four years. So who might possibly be a candidate for outpatient management of febrile neutropenia? Yeah, so I think this is a tough one for us as emergency physicians. So essentially, these would be low-risk patients. So how do we define low-risk patients? Essentially, these are patients who might be expected to have neutropenia for less than a seven-day duration. Those who don't really have any comorbidities, such as COPD, those that are younger, under 60, and those whose oncologists are in agreement or primary care physician can manage the patient that live relatively close to the hospital and can follow up and are reliable. So again, very small subset of patients, but it could be considered. Those patients do need to be watched carefully because 
if they continue to be febrile and antibiotics for two or three days, they will need to be admitted to the hospital. Okay. And I think, you know, this situation is honestly so unusual, at least where I practice. There might be some more functional systems where this is uh, more of a reality. But I feel like this is so unusual that if it comes up, just look up the guidelines. And what are those guidelines called? So the most common ones that are used are the MASC scoring system, which is M-A-S-C-C. And it includes some of those uh, risk factors that I mentioned, such as certain comorbidities, patients' age, as well as the severity of their symptoms. Okay. So in general, I feel like most of these patients are being managed as inpatient, and we need to make some decisions here about empiric antibiotic coverage. So let's talk about what are the recommended therapies for empiric coverage. So the most common cause of mortality uh, from bacteria and febrile neutropenia is going to be your gram-negative infections. And unfortunately, since a lot of these patients have been on prior antibiotic therapy for prophylaxis or other reasons, they do tend to have a higher rate of multidrug-resistant organisms, which can also be, you know, opportunistic. And so we really want to consider those gram-negatives, including coverage for ESBLs where appropriate. And so the most common regimens are going to include a gram-negative covering antibiotic that has anti-pseudomonal coverage, for example, such as cefepime or a carbapenem if you're concerned about the risk of ESBL, or piptazo is another alternative that also has anti-pseudomonal coverage. Other antimicrobials, like a fluoroquinolone, for example, can be added to the initial regimen, particularly where patients may have complications such as hypotension and pneumonia. Same for vancomycin, which is not recommended as a standard part of the initial antibiotic regimen, but can be considered for specific indications, like if the patient has a known positive MRSA swab, you suspect a catheter-associated infection, they have a skin and soft tissue infection, pneumonia, or again, they have hemodynamic instability from sepsis. And these recommendations are all listed in the Corpendium chapter along with specific dosing regimens. The one that I struggle with, to be honest, is with vancomycin because of uh, signs of catheter site infection, because they may not really have significant signs of catheter site infection, but they have an indwelling catheter and I have no clear source yet. They're still undifferentiated. So that's one that I, I feel often obligated to add on until I know where their infection's coming from. I feel like that could be de-escalated later on, but that's probably not your perspective as a steward of antibiotics. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think, you know, we just love to use our regimens. You know, I think cefepime plus vancomycin or, you know, piptazo plus vancomycin, you know, I call it the vancopime or vosin regimens. I think it just makes us feel better, frankly. It's interesting that in the 2010 IDSA guidelines that avoiding vancomycin in the initial therapy is actually one of the ones that has the highest rating for evidence. So I do think, you know, especially if you have access to rapid testing for, you know, nasal MRSA or the patient doesn't have pneumonia and you don't have outward signs of of catheter-related infection or the catheter has not been in there that long, I don't think it's unreasonable to wait. Okay, good. But then again, like you said, I'm more comfortable perhaps with considering antibiotic stewardship. The other interesting thing is that in 2016, the IDSA and Shea organizations came together with input from us in emergency medicine and made the recommendation that for special populations such as these neutropenic fever patients, that really individual sites and organizations should be developing antimicrobial stewardship guidelines for those populations based on antibiograms and other considerations. So check to see if your institution has specific recommendations. Now, when should we consider adding antifungals or antivirals? 
So antifungals in general, I think for the situations we're seeing in the emergency department, are not recommended for us to really be starting unless the patient has specific risk factors for a fungal infection. So for example, in our neck of the woods, if a patient has a history of valley fever or coxie, you know, we might start an antifungal there. Or if there's some evidence of aspergillus or candidemia or anything like that, we would start an antifungal. But in general, this is probably best left to the ID physicians and the guidelines really recommend um, that the patients you want to start thinking about a fungal infection on are the ones that have had a fever for four to seven days while already on antibiotics. Now, it gets tricky because some of these patients are on fluoroquinolone prophylaxis as a matter of routine. But in general, I would not start an antifungal in the ED without consultation from infectious diseases or really looking at risk factors for fungal infection. What about antivirals? So antivirals, you know, some patients will be on antiviral prophylaxis, but really in terms of management, the only indications for treatment with antivirals would be, for example, if you suspect or have clinical indications or laboratory evidence of a varicella zoster infection or varicella, for example, for acyclovir. And then if the patient has influenza or an influenza-like illness with a history of exposure to influenza, you would start a neuraminidase inhibitor. Summary. We covered a lot of ground. Remember that we're talking here about a patient who is truly febrile and also truly neutropenic. And oftentimes we don't have a clear etiology, for example, a urinary tract infection or a pneumonia, which would allow us to target our antibiotic therapy. So this discussion is really about the broad empiric antibiotic treatment for these patients. And we want to go broad, but we also want to keep in mind our antibiotic stewardship. And as much as I want to throw vancomycin at everyone who I'm worried about, I, Jessica Mason, from here forward promise to limit my use of vancomycin unless it is specifically indicated. Thanks again to Dr. Larissa May. And remember that you can check out this chapter on neutropenic fever in Corpendium. It's going to tell you right up front what to do with that sick patient in front of you. There's also a really nice deep dive section for your leisurely weekend reading. Susie, you ready to stand in for Amal on a little cardiology corner? Swami, I am honored. And while I did love my time in Baltimore, I'm also happy not to have an intro that includes being in the simplest capital of the world. From the city with the last remaining blockbuster in the world, what? Bend, Oregon. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Cardiovascular Corner. With your host, Dr. Susie Demeester. Susie, we recently got a listener request to discuss the Watchman procedure. And I got to admit, I had to Google it. As soon as he sent the question, I'm like, Watchman procedure? I had no idea what this was. But as soon as you saw it, you volunteered to go back to residency, do three years of internal medicine, a couple of years of cardiology, so that we could really get into this topic and dive in. So are you ready to explore this topic a little bit? Truthfully, I didn't know too much about this topic either, and so I decided to read up on the procedure. And then I also tagged along with one of our electrophysiology guys to see this done in the operating room. I did find a nice review article, which we can include in the show notes, by Kostarakis and Price, published in Current Cardiology Reports in 2018, titled Current State of the Left Atrial Appendage Closure. I thought the authors did a nice job of reviewing some of the basics and the evidence behind the Watchman procedure. 
Well, let's get into those basics. And you've already alluded a little bit to what this is, but what is the Watchman procedure and what's the goal? The basics. All right. First off, I think we need to give it to cardiology. I mean, they have the best nomenclature, great study names, great procedure names. And so this Watchman device, it's in the category of left atrial appendage occluding devices. It's been the most studied device, and currently it is the only one that's approved for commercial use in the United States. So the Watchman device is made up of nitinol, which I had to look up, but it's an alloy of nickel and titanium, and then it's covered by a polyethylene membrane. And picture kind of, I picture almost like an IVC filter, so kind of like a cage-like structure that is deployed and then opened up once it's placed in the left atrial appendage. The device is placed by first accessing the femoral vein, and then you pass the device through the atria into the left atrium, and then you place it in this left atrial appendage, and then it's opened. And then over the course of 45 days, this is really interesting, the myocardium actually grows over, this myocardial endothelium grows over the device and partitions off the left atrial appendage. But also during this period of time, the patient is at a high risk for a thrombus. And so they need to be on anticoagulation for these 45 days. But afterwards, what's the benefit of having this procedure done is the patient does not need long-term anticoagulation. Why does the device target the left atrial appendage? I remember reading about this, looking at it when we did our gross dissection and anatomy, but it's not something that we really focus very much on. Well, let's back up a little bit and just talk about AFib in general. And so we're talking primary AFib here, so not AFib due to sepsis or PE. That's a whole different topic. But AFib is responsible for one-fifth of strokes in the United States, and that's pretty significant. So it turns out that 90% of thrombi that cause these strokes originate in this left atrial appendage. So this atrial appendage is a huge problem and why the authors of this review article labeled it as our most lethal attachment. I kind of picture the appy of the heart, but with way worse consequences. So the idea here is if we can obliterate that left atrial appendage, we'll reduce the stroke risk. And then you kind of set it up front, you do need anticoagulation for a little while, but then long-term, you don't need to have that anticoagulation. The upside. Which of course then brings me to how useful is this procedure? How better is this than what we're already doing? Why not just anticoagulate the patient to reduce the stroke risk, which we've been doing for a very long time. We have a lot of experience with it. Of course, we can put patients on anticoagulation. We can use warfarin. And then I think a lot of us are switching to the DOAX. But we know that keeping patients Therapeutic on warfarin is very challenging, and studies show that patients are only therapeutic about 60% of the time. And then with the DOAX, yes, they're easier to administer, we need less monitoring, there's lower bleeding risks, but it's estimated that only 40% of patients who actually need anticoagulation are put on these medications. When we compare the Watchman device to warfarin, what we see is that patients have fewer hemorrhagic strokes, lower cardiovascular mortality, and no difference in ischemic strokes. So who the procedure is really beneficial for are those patients who absolutely cannot receive anticoagulation. The ASAP study, see, another good name here, found that the annual rate of stroke in patients who received the Watchman procedure, so those patients that just couldn't be on anticoagulation, was only 1.8% in 
which is 75% lower than expected if these patients had been placed only on a daily aspirin. So currently, the Watchman procedure is approved by Medicare and Medicaid for primary stroke prevention over oral anticoagulations for only this high-risk group. So if, for example, I had AFib or let's say someone who is in their 40s who's a very active skier or maybe enjoyed riding motorcycles, wanted the Watchman procedure so they wouldn't need anticoagulation long-term, their insurance would likely not cover the Watchman procedure at this point. But this is almost certainly going to change. There's currently numerous studies that are in process that are looking at the Watchman versus these DOACs. But for now, it's considered a first-line, second-line therapy. Complications. This makes a lot of sense as an alternate procedure to the anticoagulants. It also makes a lot of sense because it's relatively lower invasive than what you would have thought about before. If you can't do this through an interventional, you'd be talking about open heart surgery. That's a much larger procedure. I imagine that these patients are probably like a day procedure and they're going home the same day on that anticoagulation. But let's talk about some of the complications because nothing is free. You already mentioned one of them, which is the increased risk of forming a clot in the first 45 days. What other complications should we expect to see in the short term after this procedure? Post-procedural complications range, it's pretty wide range, anywhere from 1% to 8%, depending on the study. But luckily, most of these complications are occurring while the patient's still in the operating suite or immediately after the procedure. And the most dangerous and the most common complication is going to be a pericardial effusion or tamponade even caused by wall perforation. But again, the majority of these patients, this is going to occur while the patient is still sedated and often captured on this TEE. However, it's possible to have a very slowly leaking perforation that maybe was missed in the OR. And so you might see these patients the next day, maybe up to a week out, but that's going to be really rare. And so this is where bedside ultrasound, I think, would be invaluable. And that's really the first thing I'm going to reach for if I'm seeing a patient that comes in maybe the day after the procedure. So our most immediate concern is a pericardial effusion. We could also see pericarditis. The pericardium, the myocardium can be irritated after this procedure. And then with any procedure that involves the groin, we want to look for any type of vascular local complications. Patients, again, like you said, are going to be higher risk for a stroke in the first 45 days after the procedure. So you could think of a, you know, a CVA being related to the procedure if you're seeing a patient. And then pretty rare, but this device can embolize in those first 45 days. And so that could be potentially something you could see in the emergency department as well. I think the case that we're going to be thinking about or we might see is a patient who comes in short of breath after getting this kind of a procedure. So like you said, dropping the ultrasound probe, looking for that pericardial effusion, considering pericarditis. Obviously, you're going to want to talk to your electrophysiologist, your interventionalist when these patients come in to discuss some of those short-term risks and, and what we should be looking for as well. Now, in our listener's case, the patient presented months after the procedure with tamponade. Is that something that we need to be worried about as well? So I don't know the details of that particular case. I think that would be extremely unlikely. It really appears that most of these cases of effusion or tamponade are presenting, you know, at the most a day to very rarely a week out. And it's important to keep in mind that currently this procedure is only approved for those really sick patients that can't be on anticoagulation. So these patients have pretty poor protoplasm to start with. 
And so I think we need to think about other unrelated causes of their presentation. And I think with that particular case, I think it's unlikely and to keep our differential for the etiology of presentation fairly broad. Summary. So in the short term, we're going to be thinking about things like the groin puncture site, which we always think about after cath, very similar problem that we have to be looking at. These patients are going to be anticoagulated for the first 45 days after the procedure. So obviously thinking about complications of anticoagulation, migration of the device itself. I'm going to guess that if you see that, you should be writing it up and submitting a case because that's going to be fairly uncommon. But we do have to think about these complications and that slow leak. That's the one I think gives me the most angina about these cases is the patient who has a slow leak, it's missed during the procedure, and then they come in with a tamponade afterwards. I think that's something to be concerned about. But as this becomes a little bit more of an accepted procedure, as we have more data behind it, especially in comparison to the direct oral anticoagulants, we're going to be seeing more patients who have this done. So we do need to understand what complications they're going to have. If this is a procedure that's being done in your hospital, then you definitely want to talk to your electrophysiologist to think about what those complications could be, who you're going to talk to when you see these complications so that the patient can get the right care for them. But I think the big thing here is remembering that these patients have an increased stroke risk in the first 45 days. They're going to be anticoagulated in the first 45 days. And if they're coming in within a couple of days of the procedure, look for things like tamponade. Susie, this is a great review. Hopefully we have answered the question that came from our original listener. And I have never seen a patient who had one of these procedures done, but I'm gonna keep an eye out now. And I think we're gonna start seeing this more and more frequently. All right, people of the Rep Scallions, let's do the ultra ultra summary for content from last month. So it's September, right? Right. Oh. Abstract one. And first one is abstract one that they did, which is the Kobe trial, which is a big trial that was out of France, and it was about the use of hypertonic saline in people with moderate to severe, I say, head injury. And so the average GCS was seven, but you could get into this trial if you had a GCS less than twelve. They gave you a bolus of hypertonic saline. And then they gave you an infusion of hypertonic saline. Then they looked at six-month neurological outcome. And unfortunately, as has been happening with all of these papers in the last decade, no difference in outcome. So hypertonic saline as a bolus and then an infusion didn't result in any clinically important improvements. And this is too bad. We are still looking for a magic bullet when it comes to head injury. Hypertonic saline is not it. But do know do know that in this trial, they still gave hypertonic saline to people who are having these, you know, bumps in their intracranial pressure as part of the trial on both arms. But as a routine, this did not help. It is unfortunate. Abstract three. Abstract three that they did was a good one. It's a reduced alternate insulin dosing in hyperkalemia, a meta-analysis in pharmacotherapy. And basically this study of studies asked the question, if we gave a smaller dose of insulin for hyperkalemia, could we reduce the amount of hypoglycemia, but at the same time still drop their potassium the same amount? And the summary from this study is the answer is yes. So if you use five units instead of 10 or 0.1 units per kilogram, then there was a significant reduction in the potassium and there was a significant reduction in hypoglycemic and severe hypoglycemic episodes. It is not perfect evidence, 
as these studies weren't randomized trials, mostly they were, we just sort of did it and compared against when we gave the full dose. But I think it's probably worth trying because it appears to be safer with little downside. So this one's probably worth a read and maybe a little trial in your own department. Abstract 4. Abstract 4 was a really good one. It was the clinical efficacy of bronchiolitis interventions for acute care, a network meta-analysis. I do not know what network meta-analysis is. Mike explains it. It's supposedly good. I still don't know what it is. But basically, they look at all of the studies that looked at the treatments for RSV. And, you know, the sort of the common sort of thought is that nothing works for RSV. We try steroids, we try beta blockers, we try epi nebulizers, we try hypertonic silent, we try a lot of things. And basically, they say, look, nothing really works great. Maybe nebulized epi reduces admissions a little bit. and Maybe nebulized salbutamol and normal saline have some effect. But the problem is, is that poopy in and poopy out. The authors of this article said the problem is that uh, despite the fact that this is one of the most common diagnoses to get you admitted as a kid, the quality of the studies is not very good. So lots of poor studies that suggest that maybe nebulized epinephrine has some effect. Maybe some salbutamol might have some small effect or nebulized normal sign. But it's stunning to me that we still don't know and we see 1.7 trillion kids like this every week. Abstract 5. Abstract 5 was multi-center external validation of the Canadian Syncope score to predict adverse events and comparison with clinical judgment in Emergency Medicine Journal. And so this was an Italian paper Bene. looking at a different data set that had been used for a different kind of syncope study. And then they tried to apply the Canadian syncope rule to look at how sensitive and specific it was. And they basically found it wasn't that great. It was about 70% sensitive for badness. And uh, that wasn't very good when they compared it against physician judgment, which was 95%. Now, it's not really a fair comparison because there was a couple of elements that were missing from the data set that was used in the original Canadian score. But it is a reminder to me, if nothing else, that physician judgment outside of using one of these scoring systems is actually quite excellent. And it's going to be really hard for a scoring system to be better when the clinicians who know what they're doing already so good. Abstract 6. Now, abstract 6 that they did was a quick take, and it was the evaluation of a pharmacy-led penicillin allergy assessment program and allergy delabeling, mm, delabeling in a tertiary care hospital, and it was in JAMA Open. So you know the scenario, right? This patient comes in and says, I can't have penicillin because I've been told I can't have penicillin because maybe there was a rash that was along with the viral syndrome that they had when they were a kid, or we don't know why they can't have penicillin. Turns out that the overwhelming majority of these penicillin allergies are not. And certainly, you can also use things like ceftriaxone and the cephalosporins. But how do you delabel people? Because what happens is it gets handed from one charting to the next charting to the next charting to the next charting, even if you as a clinician sort of work out that this isn't real. So what they did is that they took the clinical pharmacists and said, go get them. They interviewed these patients and they determined that lots of these patients didn't have penicillin allergy. And then they implemented this de-labeling, like take that label off penicillin allergy, wherever you can find it, stop it. And when they did that, they found in this single center study that they reduced the amount of non-penicillin use. So people were using much, you know, non-penicillin, much broader spectrum stuff. And they're also able to show a significant reduction in Clostridium difficile infections. That is pretty good. And a huge reduction in drugs that produce Clostridium difficile use. So this mislabeling of people as penicillin allergic is a big problem. And in this single patient study, single center study, I should say, if you suck the clinical pharmacist on this, dang, you could significantly reduce bad outcomes. And we should be doing this more. And it's also a reminder, do not put penicillin allergy on that chart 
unless you're pretty dang sure that it is, because it has downstream effects that could affect this person for years to come. got to be careful. And it's also reminded me that I wish I had this power to delabel a couple of other people as well. You know? You know the people I'm talking about. They need to be delabeled. Oi. Abstract 7. Abstract 7 was another clinically useful study. The effects of ceftriaxone by intravenous push on adverse drug reactions in the emergency department, American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And this was a really interesting study out of Cook County where there was some problem where all of the 100 mil bags of saline suddenly exploded or something happened where there was a, you know, aliens took over the place where they made it. Anyway, the point is they couldn't find the mil bags of saline to put in the ceftriaxone to do the slow infusion. So they had to give push-dose ceftriaxone. And so they looked at hundreds and hundreds, I think over 700 patients that got ceftriaxone this way during that time retrospectively, and they had a group of people go through the charts. And in summary, they found that there wasn't any significant adverse events from doing this. Now, the pushing wasn't the slamming, it was, you know, a slow push, but it certainly doesn't appear that that results in any badness, like people's heads weren't blowing off, crikes weren't occurring. They were able to do this safely. And this is something that happens in pediatrics fairly frequently, and maybe something we need to really start to study because it could significantly reduce cost and time if we don't have to hang the bag and get the other nurse and to uh, put it on the pump and do all this stuff. If we can just do this in a push-dose form and it's safe, this might be the way to go. Not quite ready for prime time, but if you do find yourself having to do it, you can look to this literature that says you can probably do it safely. But again, don't slam it in. We don't slam anything in, except maybe uh, water when you're really thirsty. Abstract 8. Abstract 8 was another good one. It was the utility of measuring serum creatinine to detect renal compromise in ED patients receiving IV contrast enhanced CT. And the concept here was how often do we pick up an abnormal creatinine when we go searching for it before we do somebody's CT scan with contrast? Now, this is only an issue if you believe that contrast-induced nephropathy is a thing. And the boys have done multiple papers on EMA that suggest it's just not a thing in a modern contrast and modern CT scan. It's not a thing. But in this study from Mount Sinai Single Center, they found that the number needed to screen, you know, right? The number needed, number needed of creatinins that you would have to send to find somebody with a creatinine over 1.4 or 2, depending on which cutoff you used, was about one in a thousand. So you could look at the patient, you could get a history. And if, yeah, if they had renal disease, that would be an obvious thing. But just like out of the blue, wow, I didn't see that creatinine of 2.4 coming would occur about one in a thousand times, meaning that sending routine creatinins in these patients is pretty much a waste of time. It is not a perfect study because they probably excluded a significant group of people because they looked at who got the scan and then went backwards, not sort of prospectively. But it does suggest that the chance of you screening in a population of people who are going to get scans and finding an abnormal creatinine you didn't expect is pretty low. And if you add that to the fact that contrast-induced nephropathy is probably not a thing, then doing creatinins in these patients is probably a waste of time. Abstract 9. And the last one that I have time for, because I've only got 10 minutes, and I don't know who's in charge here, but it seems like I should be getting more time. Anyway, impact of age-adjusted D-dimer cutoff to exclude pulmonary embolism in a multinational perspective study. It's called the Relax PE study, and it was in circulation. It was a research letter, and it's just more evidence about the use of age-adjusted D-dimer. So they had a pretty big cohort of patients about 1,500, and they used age-adjusted D-dimer, and they found that they were able to reduce CT scanning by 20% and not miss any more PEs. It's pretty cool. So again, we've got a little bit of literature on both sides of this, but it seems to be more and more lining up on the side of, you can use age-adjusted D-dimer. 
and it works. And it doesn't mean that you're going to miss a whole bunch of PEs. It does mean that you can significantly reduce your CT scanning. And that's got to be a good thing. Now, there was a whole bunch more papers. And I could tell you about them. But the people in charge here only give me 10 minutes. Must obey every command I give you without question. If you want to hear more of this incredible content, you should go listen to EMA. Or just read the summaries. Or just listen and read the summaries. Or just listen. You should listen to the whole show. How many times do I have to say? If you keep up with this literature, you'll become an EM god. And who doesn't want to be that, right? My name's Mel Herbert. It's the Ultra Ultra Summary. I'll talk to you next month. You must obey every command I give you without question. Right, it's time for the mailbag, and we've got a big bag of letters from the home office in Muscle Shell, Montana. The banks of the Muscle Shell. Ooh, that sounds beautiful. Let's go to Montana. Let's fly fish. Let's explore. <laughs> I want to go right now. I bet it's beautiful in October. Let's do it. You think there's a lot of mussels in Montana? Yeah, that's I a good question. So, but I don't I, think so. I, you know, they're, they're not. They're freshwater mussels, Jan. <laughs> not ocean mussels. Freshwater mussels. We're going to get us some muscles. Climate's changing all the time. Who knows? <laughs> letter one. All right, Jay, let's pull a letter out. This month, our letter from Kyle reads, is there any literature or experience using buprenorphine just to control withdrawal in the ED? For example, if I have a patient who is unwilling or unable to go on long-term bup or is in the ED for another reason, can I use buprenorphine to control the acute withdrawal symptoms without a plan for a prescription and clinic follow-up? Are there any problems with this approach aside from precipitated withdrawal that I'm not anticipating? Well, we sent this over to Ruben Strayer, who is kind of our expert talking about buprenorphine. Let's hear what Ruben's got to say. Thanks for this question, Kyle. Opioid withdrawal syndrome in the emergency department should be thought of as a buprenorphine deficiency. We want every patient with opioid use disorder who is not already in a medication-based recovery program to be stabilized with buprenorphine as early as feasible and then continue with outpatient comprehensive addiction care. However, if you think it is unlikely that your patient in withdrawal will follow up as an outpatient, they should still be treated with bup. If your patient in withdrawal tells you that they're not going to follow up as an outpatient, they should still be treated with bup. If your patient in withdrawal tells you they're not going to follow up as an outpatient and then tells you you can take your Suboxone and stick it, you should still try to treat them with bup. The reason is that every hour a patient with OUD is therapeutic on bup is an hour they are safe from withdrawal cravings and overdose, and every hour is an hour that they learn that doctor-prescribed buprenorphine will prevent them from getting dope sick and an hour where they can contemplate recovery. So if your patient declines buprenorphine, try to figure out why. Some have misconceptions that you can correct, like the idea that bup is replacing one addiction with another. Some of these folks know that taking bup now will interfere with their using other opioids later, and they're not ready for recovery. Yet. But they will be. If they live long enough. So if your patient won't accept bup, treat withdrawal using non-opioids, or opioids, depending on the circumstance, but let them know that our doors are open 24-7 when they're ready to make a change. There's been a lot of movement in the X waiver process lately, as I discussed in a breaking news segment in May, and we hope to see the X waiver go away completely. 
But remember, you do not need a waiver to administer bup in the emergency department. Any clinician can treat withdrawal in the department with buprenorphine and should. Not only can you treat withdrawal with bup much faster and more effectively without an IV compared to non-agonist alternatives like clonidine and haldol, treating withdrawal with bup in the ED is the bridge to recovery and safety. We want all these patients in a proper, comprehensive medication-based addiction treatment program, but even if they don't transition to lasting recovery this time, you can and should give them a preview of recovery by treating withdrawal with buprenorphine. Jan, so Ruben's got a number of really good points here. What's your experience with this? Is this something that you're doing? Is this something you're familiar with? Yes. So for me, it is. I work in a pretty dysfunctional public hospital, you know, county system where we have very limited follow-up, unfortunately, because a lot of our patients really need it. But it does not stop me from treating them with bup in the emergency department. It really works well for symptoms. It works so much better than our old cocktails of, you know, a little ibuprofen, lamotol, clonidine, all the things we used to try. It really works. So, you know, Strayer's point about teaching the patients that buprenorphine works because at some point they'll be ready for it. You give them a preview of recovery. I just love the way he phrased that. I do too. And I think it's really important for us to engage in that discussion. Some of our patients have had bad experiences with bup. They either got it too early before they were really in withdrawal and it precipitated withdrawal. So they need to be talked through it, or they haven't been in our system in a while. And they don't even know that we can do it, that we can give them bup. I actually had a patient recently who had came in with endocarditis. She had recently relapsed, started using again. And you know what she expressed to me, one of the things she expressed to me is not wanting to stay in the hospital because she was going to have withdrawal. And I kind of walked her through and said, well, we have buprenorphine. We can do that. She's like, wait, you can give it to me here in the emergency department? And I'm like, oh, yeah, absolutely. She's like, even if I don't want to stay on it long term, because I don't know if I want it yet. And I'm like, yeah, when you go into withdrawal, you let me know and we'll start you on bup. And if you decide you don't want to go home on it after you leave the hospital, that's okay. And it really had a magnificent effect. It really kept the patient comfortable so that we could manage her medically. Yeah, it really does work. And, you know, figuring out why they're bupiverse and try to dig into that a little bit can be helpful. Sometimes you can get to kind of a reason that you can explain to them why it's still a good idea. Remember that you don't need one of these X waivers to your DEA to treat someone with buprenorphine in the emergency department. You know, the outpatient setting, it's still evolving, right? They recently took back the requirement that you have to do the eight hour training to get an X waiver. But, you know, treating someone in the ED is easy to do and very effective. So I think we should embrace that. All right, Kyle, thank you for the great letter. I know there's lots of questions about buprenorphine as we start to use it more in the emergency department. If you have them, send them along. Ruben loves discussing buprenorphine. He loves answering these questions. So we will take all of those questions that you have. We will get them to our experts. We will get you answers. And it doesn't have to be a bup question. Send us anything you got. Make sure to keep those letters coming. I'm just the postman. Monster. Like that? <laughs> Jan, we're on the other side of the program. The mailbag's over. All of the content is done, and it is time for us to launch into the mega summary. Mega, mega. Starting with the rural medicine piece. Rural medicine talks. This month, Vanessa Cardi and Julie Veith talked about an interesting case of an infant who came in with altered mental status. This was a, just briefly, three-month-old male. He came in with a period of apnea at home, followed by a short period of cyanosis, and looked pretty well. But when he came into the ED, he didn't look normal. He was sort of minimally interactive with people, but he was moving everything. He seemed to have normal tone. 
but he just was noted to be very awake. You know, he just wasn't sleeping and he just wasn't acting entirely normal. This was a normal otherwise kid with a normal birth history, full term, no complications. However, mom had used buprenorphine during her pregnancy and she had also had some exposure to amphetamines as well. And the kid had been admitted for nine days for neonatal abstinence syndrome with a couple days of hypoglycemia, and he was a little bit small for gestational age, so not entirely normal. They talk about the differential diagnosis for an infant with altered mental status, basically. There's things like trauma, tox, infection, could this be a seizure, neurologic. This was also an unvaccinated child. He had missed his first vaccination appointments. So we talked about the workup, the CBC, chem, the cultures, maybe even a procalcitonin, and they added in a urine drug screen on this kid, given the history that they were given. They also noted, and these are important observations, that during the phlebotomy and the urine cath, the baby had not actually cried a lot, which was not normal. And they also ended up doing a CT and LP, which turned out to be normal. This kid gets admitted. He's also observed not to sleep very much when he's in the hospital. He's alert, but just kind of minimally interactive. And one of the team members upstairs does a really good detailed chart review and found a note buried in there indicating that child services was worried that mom might be giving the baby buprenorphine. So they added on a specific drug screen for bup, and it was positive. This baby ends up doing well, was placed in uh, protective care. And the lessons, the take-homes here were, you know, tincture of time and observation, good detailed observation can work in your favor. And asking nurses who are actually in the room more than you are what their observations are actually added to this case. And when you have that spidey sense that one of these little guys just isn't acting quite normal, this is a time to sort of go with that spidey sense and do a deeper dive. And that's what they did here. And, and they you know, turned out to get a good diagnosis here. Sometimes this can be so hard to figure out if the kid's acting normally or not normally. A lot of times it depends on, on your experience, how many kids you've seen. I know from having three kids, Kids aren't quiet when you poke them with a needle. That is a bad, bad thing. And they sleep a lot. So we have to kind of gather that experience. And, and once, like you said, that something gets set off in your brain, that something's not right, you kind of have to go with it, especially with these kids where they're, they're so vulnerable and it's so hard to really get great information. So kudos to the, the clinicians here for getting so much information out of so little and then getting to this proper diagnosis. Absolutely. In the critical care mailbag this month, Weingart and I got to talk a little bit about ketamine for intubation. And this actually sprang out of a conference that we were both at virtually talking about this near database study that was published in 2020, looking at ketamine versus atomidate and peri-intubation hypotension. And if you just read the bottom line of that study, it would appear that ketamine creates more post-intubation hypotension than atomidate does. And that's why Weingart wanted to get into this, because this is a little bit misleading. This is registry data. There's no way to tell why the person got ketamine or atomidate. And what it looks like in the study is that ketamine wasn't widely used. So maybe it was being preferentially applied to those patients who were a little sicker. What Weingart goes through here is how to use ketamine, understanding that no matter what agent you give a hemodynamically compromised patient to intubate them, they're going to have some drops in blood pressure because you're taking away their catecholamines. So do a good resuscitation prior to intubation and then possibly using ketamine in small doses until you get them dissociated. So you don't overshoot that dissociation mark. And this is something that we have learned over time is that when patients are hemodynamically compromised, they don't always need a full dose of that amnestic agent to be dissociated. So a little bit can go a long way. 
Of course, also understanding something we didn't get into as much is that you're going to give full, if not increased doses of your paralytic because those patients aren't circulating the paralytic really well. So this just goes into a little bit more of the nuance than what you get in that near database study. And Scott points out that we have a good RCT actually from about 12 years ago telling us that ketamine and automidate are probably about the same when it comes to peri-intubation hypotension. But if used properly, ketamine can help you out here. I just thought this was so full of good pearls. And, you know, we all think that ketamine, you know, is automatically going to bump your blood pressure up and your heart rate up like it does in procedural sedation. But, you know, a sick patient is a sick patient. And, you know, they can get hypotensive after ketamine just like they can after automidate. And, you know, that pre-intubation resuscitation is so important. Ketamine's not going to prevent you from seeing that hypotension. So being prepared for it, not thinking that ketamine is some magic bullet to deal with hypotension is an important point. Jan, back in April, we had a little snack with Mike Weinstock talking about advanced directives. And now we've got part two of that discussion. This was a really interesting little discussion about cases where wrongful prolongation of life was the claim, where a patient has an advanced directive. We don't necessarily know about it. We do what we do, which is resuscitate when it's unclear. And later, a family or a patient alleges that we wrongfully prolonged life. It's kind of the flip side of what we often are really worried about. Problems with the advanced directives are many. And one of the things is that we often, we have to rely on a paper-based system, right? These are usually paper-based tools, and we have to count on those plus families communicating with us, but we just don't often have those pieces of data. So we have to make decisions without those things. In the cases when it's not clear, we always err on the side of doing more, presuming that they would want everything done, which is commonly what we do. But they get into what are some things we could do to maybe be a little bit more sophisticated with dealing with advanced directives. And they talk about the ABCDs of advanced directives. A stands for ask, how important it is to check and verify the advanced directive information. Whether it's checking with a patient, if first asking them their intentions, whether it's taking that extra step, reaching out to family or the nursing home where they came from, the facility, et cetera, and doing that due diligence to see if an advanced directive exists is important. B is to be clear with the family and a patient whether or not you think you're dealing with a potentially reversible condition versus a true manifestation of their terminal illness. Are they presenting with something in the trajectory of natural death? Or is this something like a pneumonia or a UTI that you could potentially treat with antibiotics and you think they'll probably improve knowing what you're dealing with is important? The C stands for communicating what the issues are for that patient, doing good communication about that condition, what you think the course of the illness will be, whether or not they need to be admitted, and having good communication open with family and patient is important. And then D is designing the care plan for that patient and communicating that plan clearly to the family as well. Documentation, obviously, really important. What your efforts were to try to find that advanced directive, putting that in the medical record to protect yourself and also the patient as well, that you did your due diligence to look for it. And always beware of what we call false agents or people who present themselves, for example, as power of attorney or I'm a family member who knows what they want. And you can't always know if they're truly acting in the patient's best interest. So be a little bit paranoid about that. However, that's with a little asterisk because obviously most family members kind of do know and you don't have to just, you know, think that everybody's out to get you, you know, but it is true that that can be the case. So have your spidey sets up for that. Patients can change their mind. If they were DNR before or, you know, do not want resuscitation and now they want to be intubated, that is okay. As long as they have capacity, people can change their minds. So a very good discussion about 
advanced directives, prolonging life, what we can do to avoid making mistakes in this area. I enjoyed it. Ruben Strayer Reels. Our next segment was Ruben Strayer talking about video laryngoscopy and the nomenclature around it and how we've really confused this for a long time. And a lot of that confusion springs out of the GlideScope when it came out because it introduced two technologies to the emergency department, both the hyperangulated blade as well as the video laryngoscope. And now we have to really separate those things because we have standard geometry blades. They look like a Mac 3 or a Mac 4, but they have a video at the end of them. And then we have the hyperangulated geometry where it's got a hyperangulated blade and the video at the end. And we have to understand what the benefits are of each of these, where to use them. Ruben talks a lot about how his go-to, his standard approach now is standard geometry video laryngoscopy, something that can be used both as a video laryngoscope as well as a direct laryngoscope, the same geometry as your Mac 3 or Mac 4 that you're used to, and keeping the hyperangulated around for particular circumstances. And Jan, that's kind of the approach that I've embraced as well. Most of the time I'm using standard geometry video laryngoscopy, but I like having the hyperangulated around, especially for things like C collars, where I no longer have to remove the collar. I can intubate with that hyperangulated scope without really having to apply any extra energy to that C spine. And it's always nice to have as a backup but standard geometry video laryngoscopy, that is my first go-to for every intubation. And Ruben goes through some of the nuance of these devices, where they can be helpful, where they can kind of make things a little bit more difficult, and how to work around those. Yeah, I agree. This was a confusing area. You know, video laryngoscopy came out, you know, relatively quickly in this, you know, for people who've been in the specialty for a long time. And, you know, to understand the difference between these blades and when one can be useful over the other. And being very specific, instead of asking for the video laryngoscope, actually, if you have both of these blades available, being specific about what you want is also important. So I agree. I think the hyperangulated blade is almost kind of in my plan B or my rescue plan. It's not my first go-to except for specific circumstances. C collars is one of them. I find that it's very useful, but I liked this review of the terminology and the equipment. R-E-S-I-E. Our next segment was talking lytics in stroke, and this was about the reanalysis around one of the big studies in stroke management, which was ECAST-3. And just a little bit of a reminder, we have really two studies historically that show a benefit to lytics, the NIN study and the ECAST-3 study. I'm not going to tear those apart. That is something that we have done in the past, but ECAST-3 has now had a reanalysis done. And that reanalysis says it might not be nearly as good as we thought it was. It has a fragility index about one, which means that if one patient changed their outcome, this would have made the ECAST-3 study a non-beneficial study or a negative study for thrombolytics. And then if you control for some of the baseline imbalances in stroke severity, again, the benefit of alteplase disappears. And we have to take this in the context of the fact that we know ECAST-3 is the study that expanded our time window for lytics. The bottom line here is that there really aren't any robust trials defending the use of lytics in stroke but it is part of our standard management. That's something that we have to deal with right now. Now that may change down the line. That might change with new things that are coming into play, new imaging modalities, new approaches to stroke management. But for right now, we just have to be really clear on the fact that we don't have robust evidence telling us that this is a good thing to do. I know. it's. I really enjoyed the discussion and I was familiar with these papers, but having it kind of boiled down was really helpful. Although, you know, you kind of leave that piece feeling like, but I'm still going to have to give it on my next shift. <laughs> <laughs> I still have to do it. I still have to do it, especially if I have a stroke team. They're going to kind of step in and do it. And I think the important thing for me that I take away from this, Jan, is that I think that if you're in a stroke center, if you're doing this, 
if you're giving lytics, if the patient in front of you qualifies based on the recommendations that we have, based on the protocols that we have in place, the important thing here is to still have a discussion with the patient about the upsides and the downsides of the drug, which doesn't always happen. And I think this can help to inform us and help to frame that conversation properly. And then again, allow for that shared decision-making with the patient. Rick's Rants! This month for Rick's Rants, the ASEP Workforce Report is continued to be talked about. And I think that we all know this has been a big topic of discussion in the specialty. So having a second piece on this with a different discussant was worth our time. And so Rick this month continues the discussion with Dr. Peter Vicellio from Stony Brook University. Everyone, I think a lot of people know Peter Vicellio. He's been on MRAP before. He's kind of an opinionated guy. He's the first one to tell you that. And so he has a lot of feelings about this, and they really go through what the issues are with this report, the supply-demand equation. They talk about the expansion of ED services, everything from observation medicine to having ICU care done in the ED. They point out that many of our patients that are eventually admitted to the ICU end up having pretty short stays, you know, less than 24 hours. So maybe doing ICU-level care, critical care for those types of patients in the ED is something we should be doing. And they do this at Stony Brook. This is something that Scott Weingart's involved in. An example of a patient like that would be, you know, a DKA patient that we, if we held on to them for a little bit longer, we can turn them around and actually admit them to a lower level of care. So it's an interesting perspective. They also talked about changing residency standards. They talked about APPs in the emergency department, all of the usual topics with their own spin on them. If you're interested in this topic, I encourage you to take a listen and listen to what Rick and Peter have to say. And Peter's been around for a long time. He's been doing this for a long time. He has a really interesting perspective historically on where we've come from, where we are, and and that allows him to give a little bit of information about where we're headed. And I think that's a lot of what we need to be discussing now is where are we headed and what can we do to to keep ourselves as important in the house of medicine as we are right now. And and I think there's a lot of different ways for us to look at that. So I love hearing these different thoughts on the same topic. Brian Hayes. Our next segment was with Gita Pensa and Brian Hayes talking about the beers criteria. I'll be honest, Jan, beers criteria, not something I was very familiar with going into this particular segment. But it's really a list of medications that's been put together, and it's kind of said, we should avoid these in the geriatric population. It was initially created for nursing homes, but it's kind of been generalized to a bunch of different settings. And Brian starts out very clearly stating that these are medications that are potentially inappropriate, but not definitely inappropriate. So it really needs the clinician to take into account those possible harms, but also the possible benefit for the patient they're taking care of. And they go through a number of different medications, including antihistamines, epinephrine, nitrofurantoin, NSAIDs, opioids, ketamine for pain, sulfonylureas. And I don't think the answers are are as clear as I would have thought they were. They really are very nuanced. And a lot of those drugs are ones that we use almost every shift. If you have a geriatric emergency department or if you see a lot of geriatric patients, you're prescribing these a lot. And it's important for us to know how to apply the best drug to the patient in front of us. It's a really nice piece going through a lot of that information. And there's some good links that you can follow and see where this information comes from. Yeah, I enjoyed this piece. And I think your point about whether if you work in a place where you see a lot of geriatric patients, which is probably most of us, but for the ones who really work in those heavy duty geriatric centers, this is worth knowing about. This is criteria that really give you that extra level of understanding about effects of medications in geriatric patients. And again, like considering what the other alternatives are to treat someone with is good care. You know, it's good care. So I think it was a really informative piece. I learned a lot. The Spirit of Antibiotics. This month, Jess Mason talked with Larissa May about neutropenic fever. And this is something we deal with all the time. It was really a good kind of core topic review. 
They go through the definitions of neutropenia and fever. Remember that fever means greater than 101 Fahrenheit or 38.3 Celsius at any one time or a sustained temperature of 100.4, which is 38 degrees, for at least an hour. Now, neutropenia, I think most of us think of an absolute neutrophil count of less than 500, but technically it's actually less than 1,000 for patients who are expected to go down to 500. So a little more nuance there if you're talking to oncologists about what that really means. If there's no obvious source, the workup should include the standard labs plus a couple blood cultures, one of those being from the indwelling line if they have one. And don't forget to include things like LFTs, bilirubin. Of course, you're going to do a chest x-ray if they have any respiratory symptoms, and maybe even a respiratory virus panel if you have that. Now, the most common bacterial source of mortality is gram negatives. These patients also have a higher rate of resistant organisms like ESBL and also opportunistic infections. So what about the empiric antibiotics, which you want to get in, of course, as quickly as possible? You need to have gram-negative coverage with anti-pseudomonal activity. So that means cefepime or a carbapetum if there's concern for ESBL. Piptazo is another common choice. Vanco would be a good choice if they have an indwelling line, if, if that's what you're suspecting, or if they're really sick, like hypotensive, toxic, you're going to reach for the vank. You know, you don't want to leave them without that if they're going to die. And also, some patients may need fungal or viral coverage, depending on the situation. Now, they get into a little bit sort of the controversial area of neutropenic fever, which is, can patients go home? And there are a couple risk indexes. One is the MASC, M-A-S-C-C, which is one that's out there. The bottom line here is you should really only be sending patients home with neutropenic fever if you do this in conjunction with your oncologist. There are very specific criteria about who is safe to send home. It's generally younger patients who don't have comorbidities like COPD, who look really good, who are reliable for follow-up. And we actually have those calculators in Corpendium if you want to look those up and do those calculations if you're considering it. There's a couple of tips in there that I think are really important. The anti-pseudomonal coverage. So if you're bringing the patient into the hospital, cefepime, piptazo, those are your usual agents. You only need Vanco if either you suspect that they have a gram-positive infection or they have a line. And a lot of these patients don't have indwelling catheters, so the vancomycin isn't necessary. So just think about that. Keep that in the back of your head of not every patient needs vancomycin. But that mask criteria, I think, is really interesting to look at. Have that discussion with your oncologist. One of the things that's really important in there that sometimes people forget is that if they have an indwelling line, they automatically follow that out of that mask protocol. So a lot of patients with indwelling lines, even if they look fantastic, need to stay in the hospital because they need that gram-positive coverage. And in those patients you're sending home, and Jan, I've only done this twice with the oncologist with a really solid plan in place of what we were going to do, they usually send them home with a fluoroquinolone and then see them the next day, the next day in either the cancer center or in the oncologist's office to make sure that they are actually stable enough to stay out of the hospital. It's a really tough thing to do, but there are some patients who don't need to stay. Just most of them are going to end up having to come in. Dr. Susie Demeester. And then our final segment of the month, Jan, was about the Watchman procedure with Susie Demeester. And this is not a procedure I was very familiar with. When Susie emailed me and said, I want to talk about this, I kind of looked and said, really? Do we have to talk about this? I mean, I don't even know what it is. And then guess what I saw two days later, Jan? Of course, it's going to be the Watchman yeah. procedure. I, that's how do a it status post is. Watchman procedure. I'm like, <laughs> okay, fine. You're right. We need to review this. It's a really interesting procedure that is there for patients with chronic atrial fibrillation who maybe can't be on anticoagulation or they're failing anticoagulation. And basically what the interventional cardiologist does is they do a procedure which obliterates the left atrial appendage, which is where most of these clots originate. 
And Susie talks about the fact that these are not overly common. Right now, the standard approach is to anticoagulate, but they're becoming more common. And they are right now not the first line approach. They're kind of a second line approach. But we might see that change. We might see more of these procedures being done as we get more data telling us that this is a good pathway to go and keeping patients off of anticoagulation. And so if there's going to be more of these being done, we need to be familiar with what the possible complications are. And she goes through all of the different complications, everything from the hematoma at the site where they accessed the patient's artery in order to do the procedure to some of the immediate procedures that you can see, things like pericardial tamponade. And we need to be on the lookout for all of those things, as well as in the early period, the fact that the patient actually is more clotty. Immediately after this procedure, it's more likely that they form a clot. So looking for those ischemic problems as well. Did you say more clotty? More I like clotty. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Mas, mas clotty. Mas clotty. Uh, more clotty. Absolutely. That's a real term. <laughs> well, it is for me now. I love it. I love it. Yeah, Jan, we started off by making up terms about the nose. Yeah. Uh, the, so why not, why not finish up with making up terms like more clotty? Why not? <laughs> and Jan, that's all we got. That's our whole show. It was actually a, a really diverse show, kind of all over the place where we talked about strokes and some weird cardiology things and medication stuff really all over the place, giving you all of the different information. Because let's be honest, this is what we do in emergency medicine. We see all of these things, sometimes in the same patient, sometimes not, sometimes just spread over our day, but we need to be facile with all this stuff. And, And I think this is giving us a lot of information, things that maybe we weren't as comfortable with before. I mean, we talked about babies on beep this month. I mean, what do you, what else do you want? <laughs> I think that's a bumper sticker I saw once. Yeah. Baby on beep. Yeah. Uh, don't put your babies on beep. That's like, that's, that's definitely a no-no. That is definitely not a thing we should be doing. For most patients, if you say, should I give them beep? I will say yes, but not babies. Yeah. No babies on Agree. Bupe. All right, Jan. It was fantastic being back with you this month, two months in a row. I am super excited for what we got coming up in November. Some great stuff, great segments. I hope that everybody is having a great fall, is staying safe out there, and we can't wait to see you all back in November. And until then, remember to keep doing what you do, because what you do matters. Next time on MRAP. And our medics had to care for these wounded rangers for uh, over two hours alone in in the middle of a fight. One of the only things I would revise if I could go back in time is I was pushing fluids hard. Frankly, it's outside of the comfort zone for probably anyone who's not specialty trained in congenital cardiology. Because when you shoot too low, you're not going to hit that critical therapeutic level that you need. So that's why I sent you this 66-page novel to talk about. Mm